Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Get ready for winter driving at Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers with super deals on tires, including up to $200 on new Goodyear tires, plus oil changes, brakes, batteries, and more. For value and savings, click on gotodobbs.com today. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. First batter of the night will be Christian Yelich, and with that pitch, it will be history. Gazing into Yachty, gets the sign in the first pitch. A strike, and with that pitch, Yadier Molina and Adam Wainwright have set the all-time record. They have made the most starts as battery mates in the history of Major League Baseball, number 325, a number that will never be reached again. Start number 325. That is awesome. Wow. Strike him out, throw him out. 2022, same old Yachty, same old Wayne. Swing and a miss. Helsley ends it with a strikeout. Magic number down to 12. The Cardinals win it 4-1 to one on a historic night in Major League Baseball right here in St. Louis. What a night it was alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. That audio courtesy of Valley Sports Midwest. It was a beautiful night last night as Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina made their record-breaking 325th career starts with one another as battery mates, a record we will never see broken. And I want to start out, Alex, by playing some of the audio from last night from Ollie Marmel and Adam Wainwright on what that experience was like for them before we get to what that experience was like for us. Here's Ollie Marmel on if he took any time to appreciate that moment as a fan, which I would hope he did. When they took the field, I try to take a moment, even if it was 30 seconds to a minute, and just uh, take in what was actually taking place. And um, it was cool. I was able to actually remove myself from the game for a minute and just see everybody get on their feet and actually experience it with them. And it's uh, we'll never see that broken again. I agree. Here's Adam Wainwright on whether or not he thinks that record will stand the test of time. It, it is probably cooler for me than Yachty. He's got so many cool things, you know. He's, you know, he's just got, he's just got lots of cool things, you know. This is the, the probably the, you know, next to the Roberto Clemente Award, probably the coolest thing for me in my career, honestly. I mean, and, and uh, having uh, having a record that. You know, somebody said the closest one to you is Hendricks and Contreras, and they're 200 and something behind. I was like, yeah, we're good. We're safe, I think. I think we're safe. Uh, I don't think anyone will ever break that record, so that's pretty mean. For what it's worth, he's right. I don't know, Wayno. Hendricks and Contreras could be Cardinals next year's 200 games <laughs> yeah. together. Here it goes. The most starts as pitcher-catcher duos among active players. Adam Wainwright and Yadier Merlino, of course, the new record holders at 325 starts with one another. 
Kyle Hendricks and Wilson Contreras are second, Alex, with 105. The rest of this list, Bally Sports Midwest put this out last night, is unbelievable. Number three is Aaron Nola and JT Realmuto at 88. Well, that won't last. Number four, can you believe this, is Jack Flaherty with Yadier Molina at oh. 69. So if, so if Yadi sticks around for 10 more years, Jack <laughs> yeah. might have it. Number five, Clayton Kershaw and Austin Barnes at 68. And how about this? Number six, active leaders in battery mates. Miles Michaelis and Yadier Molina. Yadier just needs to stick around. Three of the top six are Yadier Molina and current Cardinal starters. It's an unbelievable feat. It will never be broken. We're never going to see anything like this again. Alex, what was your reaction last night as we saw it? Pause because from the 217 asks a great question. How the hell can you say that that record will never be broken? Did you don't know that? Did you just hear the, the, the current leaders? You don't know that. Think about it this way to break this record, you would need a starting pitcher to make an average of 30 starts per year for the next 11 seasons. And oh, by the way, in every single one of those seasons, his catcher would also have to make all of those starts with him. It's not going to happen. You stand by that math. And oh, by the yes, I do. I stand by that. That was easy math. Ten. The reason why it will never be broken is because of free agency, because of the current age curves, because we just we're not going to. And it takes so much to go right. It takes health. It takes luck. It takes two potential Hall of Fame talents at both positions breaking into the league at roughly the same time. And it takes them both wanting to play for 20 years, despite the fact that they are remarkable talents that make a bleep ton of money. So, yeah, this is never going to be broken. And I I feel immensely confident in saying look around the league. Are there any other 41 year old pitchers who are starting every fifth day all season long for teams? Jamie Moyer's not coming back, guys. He's gone. Bartolo Colon has called it a career. That's why you're not going to see this again. You Rich Hill's probably the closest thing to that, and he doesn't Verlander. start every fifth day. And Verlander does yeah. that. But those guys, Cranky. those guys jump around yeah. teams all the time. Man, exactly. He doesn't. His longevity for Zach Cranky might not be there anymore. But oh, that's done. that's the part for me that you you just look at, and I'm the same as Ali last night. You, you kind of just sit back and you watched that moment when they walked from the bullpen to the mound and you think back of all of the games like it's amazing to me knowing that Wayno started his first game with yachting in 2004 and I was 14 years old so like to know that I was you witnessed all of those starts between these two guys and to know that Wayno missed two full seasons in his career had a COVID season with these two guys. Yachty has gone through injuries and they've maintained the level of competition. And it's not just starts with each other. We're not talking about Wayno starting and being pulled after the third inning because he's not pitching well. Every start seems to be competitive with Adam Wainwright yeah. and Yachty or Molina. And you're not going to see this again. And the part that was so cool for me, two parts. One, I thought the package that Dan McLaughlin and Tim Trokey did with Bally Sports Midwest of narrating, I think it was about a 20-minute package, narrating the timeline of those two together. It was an outstanding piece that those two put together. So congrats to them. I loved watching that. And then also watching all of their former teammates send them thank yous, like hearing Chris Carpenter and David Eckstein and um, and Matt, uh, Matt Carpenter what watching those guys talk about how impactful they had been in their career and realizing that those guys were around 
before those players were here and after those players left. It's just phenomenal. Yeah, I found it amazing last night watching it because, like, my you brought up watching their first start. Like, my first baseball memory as a fan is the strikeout Adam Wainwright gets. Not against Beltran. I don't even remember that. I don't remember that for some reason. I remember the strikeout that won the World Series. Yeah, you were four years old. <laughs> you, you don't know why. You, you were, were figuring four. out how a toilet worked at that time. <laughs> but my first baseball memory is of Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina. I seriously don't remember anything of the 06 World Series except the final out. I can remember celebrating with my dad when I was six years old, or seven years old at that time, celebrating that final out of the World Series. And now thinking back on it, now I'm just like two years into the sports industry, and I'm still watching those guys pitch and covering those guys, which is just a fascinating thing to think about, especially because as you mentioned, Alex, there's not a lot of Jamie Moyer-esque pitchers anymore that stick around for long and are this effective. Because as we mentioned, there's not very many 40-year-olds that are still playing at a high level like Adam Wainwright. And it's even more impressive, in my opinion, to see what Yadier Molina's done throughout his career because of the beating that he takes behind the plate day in, day day out. I mean, last night he took a, yeah. I think it was a Helsley fastball that was fouled straight back off of his shoulder. And yet he's played basically the big majority of Your every entire catching life. start yeah. my my whole life and he's been the number one guy my entire life yeah. i don't remember another number one catcher here in st louis i really love just incredible to think about i love when foul balls go off of yachty and they zoom in on his face and he's like man i'm too old for this bleep yeah <laughs> he, he definitely has that reaction on his face six five seven eight oh is the air comfort service text line from the three one four and by the way you guys can get involved in the show on the air comfort service text line all show today from the 314, this means we're watching the end of an era of baseball. That is 100% correct. Stuff like what we're watching right now with Yachty, and I think it is even more so more so on the Yachty side of things than it is on the pitching side. There are fewer and fewer pitchers that go deep into games, but there are still some. Like Sandy Alcantara is a throwback type of a pitcher. You've got some of those young guys that are coming up even today that still go deep into games because they are just that excellent. On the catching side of things, though, I mean, think about how much has changed at that position compared to when Yadier Molina came into the league. Like, you now have pitch calm. Soon enough, we're going to have automatic balls and strikes. There is not going to be any more of the art of stealing a strike for your pitcher. That's that's going to be a thing of the past. The stuff that made Yadier Molina so incredibly valuable early on in his career, you're not going to have as many catchers that even think about that stuff anymore because it's just it doesn't hold the same amount of value. So... It is absolutely, in some ways, the end of an era of all of baseball, and it is certainly the end of an era for Cardinals baseball, and that's something that Ollie reflected upon last night on Wayno and Yachty and how they embody everything that it means to be a Cardinal. We're talking about the longevity of their careers. They, they've added to this culture. We talk about uh, sustaining success, and those guys drive that clubhouse. The details of the game, the competitiveness, what it takes to win, the accountability player to player, a lot of that comes from those guys making sure that they keep that locker room and that, that clubhouse in check. So they've done an unbelievable job over the last couple of decades, and uh, we're better for it. Once they're no longer here, um, that culture will remain because of them. One of the best pieces of advice that I've ever been given was you want to leave every room you walk into better than when you walked in the door. And that's something that Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina have done to the nth degree with that clubhouse. They are leaving the Cardinals clubhouse whenever they do Yadi this year and Wayno whenever that may be in a better place than when they walked in. They are, when you think, what is the Cardinals championship culture? What is the Cardinals way? Well, it's embodied by those two. 
Like Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina got here at the front end of that. Albert Pujols is a big part of that. What changed in the early 2000s? Those guys changed. The MV3 era became a thing. The ownership that is currently in place allowed all of this to happen. John Mosellock took what was built previously by Walt Jockety, and he continued to maintain that integrity of what it means to be a Cardinal. So what you watched yesterday was really like the crowning achievement of what they've been building here over the last 20 years. I, I know that Randy's favorite stat is the number of games that Yachty and Wayno have played together here in St. Louis without being in contention, like playing games that quote unquote don't matter. What is it, 12 like games? 23 games in their entire careers that were not a part of a playoff race. Yikes. They've started 325 games together. Like that's that's ridiculous. And that's what it means to be a championship caliber team, a championship caliber organization. And to Ali Marmol's point, those are the two guys that embody all of what it means. Uh, you heard that from every player on the broadcast last night that said a thank you to him that said like, you know, even BT's message was like, you know, I, I was molded because of you two players in the league that I was with. And I was thinking about that last night when they were playing together. And, you know, we got the list of the amount of catchers that caught Adam Wainwright, not named Yadier Molina. But sit there and think of the amount of pitchers that threw to Yadier Molina. Yeah. And think of the careers post Yadi, because that's the part that got me. We talk about how great Jose Quintana has been now that he's got Yadi as his catcher and how Jordan Montgomery has pitched better with Yadi as his catcher. But think about the guys who threw to Yadi and looked so good in a Cardinals uniform, but then went elsewhere and struggled. That's the impact of Yadier Molina that I don't know if people truly take into consideration. How about this from Ben Fred? Adam Wainwright's career ERA with Yadi, 3.2. Adam Wainwright's career ERA with any other catcher that has caught him, 4.1. That's wild. Well, thanks for shooting down Ed Easley, BK. That is a remarkable statistic. He His ERA drops by almost a full point. When somebody not named Yadier Molina is catching him. And that's to your point, Alex. Like this guy just, he makes that big of a difference. That's why he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. And he will get in the moment that he is eligible for the Hall of Fame. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll be taking your text and your mic drops throughout the day today. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. If you'd like to get in involved in the show with your thoughts, your impression from last night. We will also hear from Bill DeWitt and John Mozalock their comments from the broadcast last night on why they believe that Bueno could maybe will be back next season and what uh, next year could mean for Bueno's Hall of Fame resume. But coming up in 15 minutes, we're going to talk to Ben Heisler, our NFL betting insider. Want to get his thoughts on tonight's game between the Chiefs and the Chargers. When we walked out of the studio yesterday, Alex, Anthony Stalter looked at me and said, four and a half points? Your boy's getting four and a half points at home? Feels like a lot to me. I'll ask Heiss if he's on board with will that. will probably take it. Coming up at 1130. But next, <laughs> we got to talk about the Blues. <laughs> Doug Armstrong made an interesting comment yesterday about Jake Neighbors. Hey, Alex. Yeah, buddy. I think I was right. We'll talk about You're it next year right. on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Ferrario 
and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Ben Heisler joins the show coming up in 10 minutes to give us his thoughts on tonight's game between the Chiefs and the Chargers. You'll be able to hear that right here on 101 ESPN with pregame coverage beginning at 630. We'll also get his thoughts on the best bets in the NFL in college football going into the weekend. But... Alex, yesterday, Doug Armstrong met with the media and much of his comments were focused on Jordan Cairo and what that contract extension means for the team. He was also asked, though, because it is prospects camp this week about Jake Neighbors. And this comes from Jeremy Rutherford. Army said, quote, if Jake Neighbors is a contributing player on our team and he's good enough, he will stay. If he's a non-contributing player or part of the 10 to 14 forward. So bottom three, fourth line player in your lineup, the likelihood is he will not be here. That's the pressure he has to face. That's what pro athletes face all the time. End quote. Again, that was a comment from Doug Armstrong to Jeremy Rutherford of the athletic. To me, when I read that comment, Alex, you can tell me if you disagree on this. It tells me Jake neighbors is battling for one spot in this lineup. It is that third line winger role. And if he does not win that job, if they decide that maybe it's a Logan Brown or if Alexi Torvchenko is ready to go by opening day, which seems like a long shot, but Hey, he was skating yesterday and that was not something we were prepared for. If he loses that role, then he will be starting out the season in the AHL. What did you make of that comment from Army yesterday? So initially, I thought that as well. I looked at it and said, okay, so if he's not a top nine forward, he's not going to be on this team. But the part that got me, and maybe this is me reading too much into it, if he's a non-contributing player or part of 10 to 14 in your lineup, I, I think Doug Armstrong's putting that up as if, look, he needs to be top nine. But if he's not top nine and he outperforms certain individuals on our roster that we thought are fourth-line players. Like, let's say, for instance, Jake Neighbors is outplayed by Logan Brown for the third line. But Jake Neighbors plays better than Clem Costin, than Nathan Walker, than Josh Levo, than my guy Martin Frick. Then Jake Neighbors might actually still be a part of this team just as a fourth-line player because he's better than those options. But I do truly believe, even with that being said, the goal for Doug Armstrong and Craig Berube in front of Jake Neighbors is... You need to be better than all of these players. If you're not better than Logan Brown, than Clem Costin, than Nathan Walker, if these guys outperform you in training camp, then we are going to send you to the minors because you need more work. They want Jake Neighbors to be a contributing piece of this top nine. And if he's not, then that's going to stunt the growth of this franchise in terms of what Doug Armstrong feels like its view is beyond this season. Like, JR was on with the morning show today and he talked about how Doug Armstrong has done a phenomenal job of building that sub core while one core is in place. Mm -hmm. That's what he's done with Robert Thomas and Jordan Cairo while another core was in place. He's trying to get neighbors in Bullduke into that sub core level that the core is in place. So if neighbors is outperformed by all of these guys, then yeah, he is going to start in the American Hockey League. I don't think it's just all of those guys, though. I think it's one of them. Like, if he's outperformed in camp by Logan Brown, I think you see him go down to the AHL. But I think if he plays better than all of these other... Like, if he's more competitive than these guys on the fourth line, I think they'll keep him here because he's a contributing piece. But that's what I don't understand. If he is part of that 10 to 14 in your lineup, the likelihood is he won't be here. That 10 to 14 includes the fourth line and then the two extras that you potentially have on your roster on opening night... I don't think that you say that 
if you see him as a potential fourth line player, if he's a part of that portion of your roster, that means he's a fourth line player and he would potentially still be here. That would be my assumption. At least I no longer feel that way any longer. And I, I think to your point of kind of to get him and Boldwick into the kind of that sub core level for the St. Louis blues. I think you're better off. He's going to develop more and get to the role that you're hoping him to do. If he's in the minor leagues and working on things rather than getting limited ice time on the fourth line or Agreed. sitting up in the press box, like they did with Logan Brown, where they say he's not a top nine forward, but you didn't want to eat. I don't know if they could, you could send him down to a the one minor way leagues. deal, right? Yeah. One way yeah. deal. And, so you just put him up in the press box, but neighbors is a lot younger than Logan Brown still. So I think the best case scenario is you send him down to the minor leagues and you continue to get him reps. It's like you hear with the Cardinals all the time. Well, we don't see a role for him. So what are we going to do? We're not just going to have him sit on the bench and not really contribute and not getting reps to continue his development. We're just going to send him down to get uh, reps and continue developing. That's what they're doing with Juan Yepes right now. The Cardinals are, but see, I think they're viewing this season different than last season. Last season, the fourth line, you had so many options offensively that the fourth line, you wanted it to be better, but it wasn't, the biggest need I think the fourth line is a need this season and I think they're viewing it as we need the fourth line to be competitive we need to have an offensive mind on our fourth line that's why they went out and got Noel Achari that's why they have Alexi Torpchenko when he's healthy that's why I believe they're going to give Clem Costin an opportunity and that's why I, I and like I said maybe I'm reading too much into it yeah how do you explain that line then that, the that, or, that portion of the or if he's a non-contributing player or part of 10 to 14 in your lineup. Because I think if he's a contributing player to your roster, but he's playing on your fourth line, I think they view him as an asset to this team. But if that's not what he said. He said if he's a part of the 10 to 14 in your lineup, he won't be here. Well, JR tweeted it as if he's a non-contributing player or part of 10 to 14 in your lineup. Then the likelihood is that he will not be here. Like those are, those are, but I think that or is the difference here. I think the or is if he's contributing to where if he's aggressive, if he's one of your most, most competitive players, but they view Logan Brown as a better option at the time on the third line. I think they view Jake Neighbors as okay. We have a role for you now in the NHL. <laughs> like, See, that's I what I would. That's what I, I would assume. I just disagree with that. I think they'll view it as you're not ready to be our third, a top nine player for us, but we think you will get there with reps at the NHL, and you're a contributing piece of this team. So we'll start you on our fourth line, and as the season progresses, five games in, Logan Brown takes a dip, or Ivan Barbashev takes a dip. Jake Neighbors is playing the best out of anybody on the team. He's going to get that spot opportunity up higher. If we were to guess right now, what do you think the fourth line looks like? Like, let's let's go down this hypothetical scenario where your guy, Logan Brown, ends up performing like a madman. He looks great in, in training camp, and he performs well in preseason as well. He's your third line winger. What do you think, if you had to project today, your fourth line will look like? Let's assume you that Torchenko is not healthy. And you said the assumption is Neighbors outperforms and he's your third line. No, Logan Brown, Logan your guy, okay. ends up being your third gotcha. line winger. And your fourth line, Torpchenko, not an option. He's still hurt. He's going to be back in like November or something. He's ahead of schedule, but still not ready to go opening night. What do you think that fourth line would look like? Well, I think Achari is your center no matter what. I think that Neighbors is going to have a very good camp like last season, and Neighbors will be a part of this team, so he'll be on one wing. And then I think the competition, I know people want Nathan Walker there, but I think the competition is going to come down to Walker, Costin, and this Josh Levo that they signed. I think they'll probably give it to Clem Costin because I feel like they're trying to jam a square peg into a round hole with Clem Costin of saying, no, you're an NHL player. We need you to be an NHL player. So I think I think to start the season, your fourth line will look like Clem Costin, Noel Achari, and um, Jake Neighbors, and then you'll have Walker or Levo as that extra forward. This is where I think it's tough because I, I, 
I don't know what they would do on that fourth line. Like I, I am genuinely operating under the assumption that you're going to go into the season and I don't think neighbors is going to be an option for your fourth line. I, I think that that's the way that I read it. I think your guy Martin Furk might be one of the players Let's that, go. Is, that is an option. Member there. of the Ferrario Five, he'll get a T-shirt. I, I forgot about it. Like you <laughs> throw right. him in there, you throw Clem Costin into the mix, you throw. I, I agree with you. I think that Achari is a locked-in member. Yeah, I think he's one point one million or one point two yeah. million dollars for a reason. He's Bozak this season. I think Nathan Walker would probably be my second player. I think it's Achari Walker, and then th- that third spot is all of the other players that are kind of battling for one spot on the roster. I think Levo maybe earns a role there. I think Costin is an opportunity there. And then whoever doesn't start there, those are your two extras. And then they just cycle through until one of them ends up working. And I believe Josh Levo, he was given a two-way contract. I think it's one way. Was it? Okay, so you look at the one-way contracts first and you say these are the guys that they basically have the advantage over other players because Martin Frick. It's the 40-man spot for Major yep. League Baseball, right? Those yep. are the guys that are going to get the first opportunity. Martin Frick, I'm a big fan of, but he's a two-way contract guy, so he can be sent down. Will go. Bitten's another one I brought up. He can be sent down. The the, the one-way contracts are going to get an opportunity, and then from there, if they get outperformed, then Doug Armstrong's going to say, oh, sorry, you're going to go through waivers and see if you make it there. Also, don't forget the Tyler Pitlick guy that they signed to a player tryout contract. He's going to be in this competition that. also. In 15 minutes, we'll get to some questions and answers. 65780 is the air covered service tax line. But next, Ben Heisler joins the show. You can find his work over at BetSide, and you can hear him weekly right here on 101 ESPN. We will hear his thoughts on the betting portion of tonight's game between the Chiefs and the Chargers. Also want to get his thoughts on a big weekend in the NFL slate as well. Ben Heisler next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Ben Heisler is going to help us with our football picks for the week because Tanner needs a lot of help with football picks. Amen to that. You can find Heis on Twitter at Benny Heis. You can also read him over at BetSided as well. Heis, we appreciate the time as always, man. Last week, me and Alex both went 3-0 and in our Pick'em Challenge. Tanner went 2-1. and He is now running a mile while drinking four beers in between the quarter miles. How you doing today, buddy? I'm better than Tanner, apparently. Are you guys going to take it easy on him and like at least give him some some Bud Light as far as his beer? Are you going to oh, no. give him full Bud Heavy? We oh, yeah. are an AB Bud uh, product show, so we will be going with Bud Light, I believe, tomorrow. So, all right. So, like, that's a fair compromise. If you're going to have to go ahead and run a beer mile and again four beers over the course <laughs> of it, I, I it's nice of you that you're going to at least go with the lighter option. I, I mean, I guess you can go Bud Select. I mean, you want to try and get somewhere in between, but I, I think what you're doing is actually taking it a little bit easy on him, but, and, I, and I appreciate that. But Heist, what he doesn't know is we're going to play a little beer roulette, and one of those <laughs> beers are going to be filled with tequila. <laughs> See, now we're getting into an area where well, I guess it could be fun. Yeah, oh, it's going to be fun. <laughs> Heist, the whole reason of this is punishment. He's got to vomit at some point. Heist, it's going to be 90 Heist. tomorrow. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Tomorrow? It's oh, not like yeah. a, a date down value. You know, it's a little bit, you know, TBD. No, no, no. Two no. o'clock we gotta, tomorrow. We got to serve these punishments as soon as possible, man. We got to get these things out of the way. Can't have them all build up. 
All right. Well, if you're going to be doing uh, you know, beer tequila roulette, uh, Tanner, just try to get the tequila sooner rather than later. Like, I can't decide if that's better or worse. <laughs> no, I would do no, it later. No, 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 no. I would, I would do it earlier because then you're at least more of the way there and the bud is actually not sitting in your stomach in the early portion of the mile. Again, uh, but I, I don't have a lot of experience drinking tequila and drinking Bud Light over the course of a mile run, but... That's how I would play it. But Heiss, you're missing the point. I want him to vomit. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, Heiss, let's talk a little bit of football. We're not betting on this game. It's before we make our picks. But tonight's a good one. Chiefs versus the Chargers. First game on Amazon Prime. People can listen to it as well right here on 101 ESPN with pregame starting at 630. The line in this one is four points. The over-under is 54. And I saw something earlier today that Thursday night football seems to go under way more often than people would expect. What are you anticipating in this game between the Chiefs and the Chargers? So let's start with the trend that you just brought up, BK, which is that in Thursday night football games where the total is listed at 54 and a half or above over the last decade, um, unders have gone seven and zero. Now, if you bring that number down to 54, uh, it's actually seven and two. The two teams in that last decade that have hit the over when the total is closed at 54 are the Kansas City Chiefs and the uh, L.A. Chargers. Now, at one point, it was back in 2018, they were the San Diego Chargers, and it was still Patrick Mahomes playing for the Chiefs in both those games. So he's put up excellent numbers pretty much every time he's played against the Chargers. So that would initially lead you down the road of thinking, well, it's Mahomes and it's Herbert, and yeah, I have to take the over here, right? That's what history tells me to do. The reason that I'm on the under in this game is because I think we're still undervaluing actually how good both of these defenses are. You're seeing an entirely different pass rush now from the Chargers side. Khalil Mack in the mix now, three sacks in the first game of the season, makes an enormous difference for him. They went up against a Raiders team that I think we can all laugh at because it's the Raiders, but they're still a team that is going to have one of the more dominant offenses, I think, in the NFL this year, and really the only way they're going to be able to win games because their defense is going to be bad. Chargers left some points on the field last week, and I, and I still wonder, without Keenan Allen, uh, whether or not that could be potentially you know, a, a major problem for them. You know, I was talking with Matt Verderam of the Arrowhead Attic podcast, and we talked about how if you're Kansas City, uh, you just double up Mike Williams and let somebody else beat you. So I like the under in this game at 54.5. I still think both quarterbacks will have excellent games, but I think the, the betting market right now is undervaluing what we've seen out of both these defenses so far, which are two very solid units that both get uh, both do a really nice job of getting to the quarterback. All right, Heiss, on the Sunday slate, the one game that I'm kind of looking at on the betting side of things is uh, one that might surprise some people, but Cincinnati at Dallas. I'm surprised that they're giving Cincinnati the minus, set, minus seven spread, but on the flip side of that, I understand because Cooper Rush is awful. Yeah, well, Cooper Rush is, isn't great, but are you really <laughs> trying to tell yourself that? that Dak Prescott is worth nine points? I don't think so. And Prescott's a great quarterback, and obviously it's the most important position on the field, but I think it's a gross overreaction on, on him being out for this game. You know, one-game sample at home. Uh, Cincinnati had some flaws that were clearly exposed last week. Um, Joe Burrow turning over the ball that much. Maybe you don't anticipate it happening again, but uh, I thought Dallas did a pretty nice job especially limiting uh, Tampa Bay on third down. Like that's one of the, that's going to be one of the better offenses in the league. And I know that Brady's offensive line doesn't look great right now, but the amount of weapons that they have on that team, Dallas, I thought really held strong defensively. And I think you might see a few more turnovers this week from Burrow and company as well. I, 
I think it's a too big of an overreaction. The fact that you can get Dallas as a seven and a half point dog at home, certainly not one of my favorite bets of the week, but uh, definitely probably leaning towards the Cowboys to cover that number at seven and a half. Heist, one of my big stances this year is that the New England Patriots actually stink, and this is going to be the first year where we don't see them end up being a very good team under Bill Belichick. I also really love the Ravens, and so as I look at the Dolphins, who looked fine I guess last week against the uh the Patriots and I look at the Ravens who I I think held a decent amount back last week against the Jets I love the Ravens minus the three and a half points at home against Miami where is your lean in that game that's probably one of the tougher ones that I've been trying to figure out really throughout the course of the week I my initial lean was to take the Ravens as well I, I think we tend to overvalue a lot of teams from week to week and you're right. Like Baltimore, given the amount of players that they have back returning from injury, uh, Lamar, I thought looked very good. Rashad Bateman uh, added a nice wrinkle. Miami has a, a terrific defense. Like I, I don't want to undervalue that and having Tyreek Hill now in the mix offensively and, and two of being able to make those connections look good. Like I, I think it's going to be probably a really fun game and, and maybe closer than most would anticipate. I think the Ravens are going to be a pretty public team. Um, I, I do think they can cover the three and a half, though. Probably one of the ones that it's a stay away from me, uh, given the fact that I was very impressed with what I saw from from Miami last week, as well as Baltimore. Uh, a stay away game, I would imagine, for you, Heist, but I'm just curious if you're believing in the hype of Chicago after one game, or oh. if you should just stay the hell away considering they're plus 10 against the Packers. That's also really tough. If I had to take a lean, I would probably take the Bears at plus 10. And the reason for that is that think about the level of competency that they showed. Like this defense is going to play right. Listen, yes, it, you're we, down bad. The level you are down like, so bad. Ice. The level of competency <laughs> is what you are touting. I love it. <laughs> think about it from, think about it from where it was the last few years 100%. under Matt Nagy guys. It's, it's a very different team under Matt Eberflus. They were prepared. They had an actual game plan. You saw good play design against San Francisco. And yeah, like, it was in a it was in an absolute monsoon and the 49ers pretty much quit in the fourth quarter but given Aaron Rodgers still trying to figure out what to do with this offense um given the fact that their offensive line is is a mess and the bears have done a good job so far of generating pressure taking the ball away uh it's a low total in this game of 42 and a half usually the the lower the total more often underdogs tend to be more successful the fact that they have to cover 10 points that, that's a lot of points in a game that's a total of 42 and a half. So I expect Green Bay to win. That's pretty much all Aaron Rodgers has done against Chicago. But 10 points does feel a little bit too much. Heist, final thing for you. I made a terrible mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and our fantasy football draft that I am the commissioner for this year. Terrible commissioner, Heist. <laughs> I decided that I would make a change to the time between picks because we have a lot of people around here, Heiss, as you can imagine. You've worked in radio before. Very busy. There's a lot going on. Our afternoon show has a guy that is on the uh, pre and post games and also calling the games for the Cardinals. Uh, Our morning show has to be up at 5 a.m. There's a lot going on around here. So I decided to make the time between picks 30 seconds. And people were less than thrilled by the decision. And our morning show got Adam Wainwright's thoughts on said decision. Here's what he had to say. I would be curious your thoughts on the other side of this Adam Wainwright comment. 
The draft is the best day of the year besides my wife's birthday and Christmas. Why would you want to rush through that? Two, 30 seconds is barely time enough to scroll through <laughs> and figure out who's available. I mean, that's a rookie commish not understanding the flow and the importance of the draft. Come on, clean it up, commish. Clean it up. Ice, your thoughts? He still didn't clean it up. <laughs> yeah, he's he's right, BK. That was a bad mistake. I will tell you, though, that... I think two minutes, which I think is fairly standard or a minute and a half, can be too long. Yeah. I think a minute is actually for, again, it's dependent on whether or not everybody is there together or not. If you're, if you're having an in-person draft, right, you're there with a bunch of your friends, you're having some beers, you're going back and forth and stable, then it can be a little bit longer. But if it's just yep. a traditional online draft, I think one minute is actually the perfect amount of time, given the nature that people are busy, that you have a lot going on. So to a certain extent, Wayno is right. Like you do want to savor the moment, but I also know Wayno has gone to a lot of these in-person drafts uh, and he's usually with there, he's there with his buddies. And I think that's an entirely different experience. If you're just online staring at a computer it doesn't need to be two minutes longer or anything longer. Thank you. Hi, hi, what Heiss actually said there, I, I think I heard this correct. Al, you tell me if this is the way that you heard it as well? BK was right. No, I heard him say you still should have been a competent commissioner and made it a one-minute pick. Heiss, what Are would you, you saying s- I'm the Matt Nagy of yeah. fantasy football commissioners? Heiss, what would you say if uh, one commissioner of the draft also scheduled it a week later and Pacific time? Uh, it was an accident. It got corrected. Yeah, man, that's like shades of Nathaniel Hackett going on right now for fantasy, for, you know, fantasy commissioners. Like that's that's concerning. What like, we're learning like, is he's you know, accident you know, prone. Yeah, we always joke that like coaches should just hire somebody to tell them how much time is left on the clock and yeah. like what they should do in that scenario. BK, you might need that. Might need a little bit of assistance on uh, on the fantasy draft side. Well, we uh, we got all the kinks worked out, and yeah, next year is going to go super smooth. Oh no, I'm not coming back next year. We're <laughs> <Okay>. done. Heist, <laughs> uh, we appreciate the time as always, man. Thank you for joining us today. You can find him on Twitter at Benny Heist. We'll talk with you again next week, man. All right, fellas, be good. You got it. That's Ben Heist joining us here on a 101 ESPN. I'm happy to hear that he agrees with the way that I went about the fantasy football you draft. You and I hear things very different. That sounds about right. Coming up in 15 minutes, the Cardinals are motivated to get that first round by. Starting to feel less and less optimistic, less and less crazy. Tell you about that coming up at 12 o'clock. But next, let's get to some questions and answers. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. If you've got any questions, throw them in now on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text now to 65780. It's PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Comfort service text line for questions and answers. Let's start out with this one from the 314. Guys, do you like Joshua Palmer tonight to be a breakout with Keenan Allen out of the game? I do. If you're playing uh, fantasy football this week and you've got a need at wide receiver, I think Joshua Palmer is a perfectly fine start. I don't think you should expect a ton out of him, but if he gets like four catches for 60 yards, that feels like a reasonable kind of game out of Josh Palmer tonight. So I I think that would be totally reasonable to expect out of him. I, I think he has a decent game. I think the guy that has a really big game, and I'm glad for it because I got him in both my leagues, I think it's Gerald Everett. I think he's he got a lot of targets last week. Uh, he, enough with the Gerald Everett he, stuff. He did more than I was expecting. He went, un, he went undrafted in both my fantasy leagues, and he's a guy that when he was with the Rams and Wright, 
He's a guy that can put up some decent points for you fantasy-wise. I think he has a big game tonight. I think he's going to be potentially maybe the number two target for Justin Herbert. Clyde Edwards-Alaire had a good first week. I think he's going to have another good week this week. So if you've got him and you've got a decision to be made there, I I would recommend starting him. Um, I also think Juju Smith-Schuster is going to eat across the middle of the field tonight. What's so, he eating? Uh, probably some soy, most likely. Seems right, like your kind of guy, then. Adjust my line. I was going to say, you might need out. to sit him then if he's a soy guy. Hey, guys, which Jordan will be the best in St. Louis? Montgomery, Cairo, or Walker? Whoa, no love for Bennington? No, come on. Whoa. I've seen that train. Yeah, you saw him almost win the freaking Stanley Cup. Nazem Kadri. Uh, I would rank them as Walker 1, Cairo 2, Montgomery 3. Like, we're talking career, right? Mm? Yeah, I would rank them as Walker 1, Cairo 2, Montgomery three. That's how I would rank them as well. I say I think that's where I would go too because I think Walker's a stud. Cairo's going to be here. I mean, now eight years minimum, and then Montgomery. I don't know what the long term plan is for him, and it would be tough for him to surpass what I think those two are going to do because I could see Montgomery them not doing an extension with him final year of arbitration, and then he just walks in free agency. I think Cairo hits ninety points either this year or next year, but I still think Walker's going to be better than. Jordan Cairo. 65780 is the air comfort service text line. Hey guys, with the rule changes putting more emphasis on left-handed hitting, speed, and defense, do you think that Tommy Edmond will become an even more valuable player next year? I think so. I've always been on the Tommy Edmond trade. I, I think I think the speed and defense is going to be the most value when it comes to Tommy Edmond um, because of what we're seeing this season with him stealing bases and I love the idea. I said it yesterday. I love the idea of making him your permanent shortstop moving forward and spending money elsewhere via free agency because I think he can handle that position very well. And the ability that we have seen of him looking like a gold glove caliber player at second base and at shortstop. I would agree with that. I think it adds some more, a little bit more value to him. And I think it's, in my opinion, it's more the defense than it is the uh, speed threat of him because he's already a threat now on, on the bases and, yep. and I don't know if you'll see such a marginal increase with the it, the pickoff limitations next year and also the increase in the bag size but where I do think you'll see it is is the defense and I'm going off of I kind of agree with you I wouldn't mind seeing him as the everyday shortstop next year at least starting the year but if let's just say he's at his primary position second base it's going to be more valuable I, I view second base as not being a valuable position right now because like my opinion, A, the ball's not hit there as much because there's more right-handers than there are left-handers that pull the ball. And then B, you can hide a guy in a shift. You're not going to be able to do that next year. Gorman can't be hidden in a shift now defensively. You need a decent defensive second baseman. And that's why I think there's a little bit more value added to him than uh, you would say like a Nolan Gorman, for say. Yeah, I'm with both of you guys. I think it is the defense that makes him more valuable. By the way, Tanner mentioned this before the show today. Uh, he's very close to reaching 30 doubles, 15 home runs, and 30 stolen bases on the season. With five triples. Do you guys know who the last Cardinal was to accomplish such a feat? Any guesses? Last Cardinal, 30 doubles, 15 home runs, and 30 stolen bases it, in an individual This season. is a stat that would scream Ray Langford. I was thinking Willie McGee. Ray Langford did it twice. Lou Brock did it twice. That's the entire list of Cardinals in the history of the organization that have accomplished. I didn't think Lou Brock would have that much I'm surprised power. Willie didn't. Uh, Lou Brock actually had 21 home runs in one of those seasons. Wow. Um, and 52 stolen bases. A hell of a year for Lou. A name I thought might be other, but then I, th- I didn't think he'd have the power was uh, Coleman. Coleman would yeah. have easily covered the doubles and the stolen bases. Yeah, pretty amazing. Uh, Tommy Edmond is putting together one hell of a season. So uh, I think he's already crazy valuable. Tan- uh, Alex mentioned this stat before the show. 
The Cardinals now have the number one, number two, and number three players in baseball references version of wins above replacement in the National League. Think about that. The top three players in the National League by position player wins above replacement, they play for your Cardinals. And Tommy Edmond is third on that list. Just, but he can't hit right-handers. Just an absurd season. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll dive into some NFL quick hitters, including our thoughts on tonight's Thursday night football game. But next, (laughs) the Cardinals sound motivated to get that first round by. Is it realistic? Certainly feels like it might be next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. It's right there, right? Might as well reach for it. That's what we're trying. I mean, that's uh, something we decided a week ago or so. It's started looking at that Mets Braves team, and I don't want to give too much away because I don't want them knowing we're trying to catch them. But uh, they probably know that. That was something we decided as a team that the, the worst thing that can happen is we get complacent and get comfortable with this big lead we have. There's an opportunity ahead of us to reach that carrot that you said, that whoever's ahead of us get that number two seed. That's a real thing. That could happen. I mean, I've seen this team come back from 10 and a half in September. So, you know, the four doesn't sound like a whole lot to me. I thought it was kind of ridiculous. I'm going to be totally honest with you guys. Kind of ridiculous the notion that the Cardinals could get the number two seed in the National League. That was about a month ago, though. And then the Mets started falling back to the pack. And now the Braves are starting to play a little more up and down. They look hit and miss at times. And with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. That was Adam Wainwright after the game last night. Audio courtesy of Valley Sports Midwest. Alex, suddenly it doesn't sound so crazy anymore. The Cardinals are currently four and a half games back of the New York Mets for the number two seed in the National League. They are four games back of the Atlanta Braves. Both of those teams lost last night. Cardinals win. That's how they get to where they are today. They have to win or they have to exceed the win total of both of those teams because the Cardinals lost the head-to-head series against those two teams this year. So those teams hold the tiebreaker over the Cardinals. So they have to clear them. So really, although they're technically four and a half games back out of the Mets, they're actually closer to five games back from the Mets. I don't think that I would predict the Cardinals will get that two seed. The odds are against that. However... Alex, do you think they've got a realistic shot of doing so? Realistic? Yes, because, I mean, the math works itself out there, and you take away that stretch of games against the Dodgers and Padres and Brewers, you're playing the Pirates for six more games, Mm -hmm. and you've got this set against the Cincinnati Reds that starts tonight with a doubleheader in between. Like, you have the opportunity in front of you, and we've talked about this in the past, like, the Mets' schedule is not that favorable, nor is the Atlanta Braves' So the opportunity is there. I I don't believe that they will get that, though. I think you're going to get close. Four and a half is obviously very doable, even if five games, very doable. But you're not talking about the Cardinals winning five games. You're also talking about the Braves going into a little bit of a slump and the Mets going into a little bit of a slump. And as much as I want to believe that's possible, I also know World Series caliber teams play the right way down the stretch. And even if the Cardinals go on a run, I expect the Atlanta Braves to do the exact same. I think the Cardinals can catch the Mets. I don't think the Cardinals can catch the Atlanta Braves. And a lot of this is going to ride on Paul Goldschmidt, because if you don't get him back to the MVP caliber that he was, then that's going to really take a shot at you winning the top two spots in the, uh, in that national league. Yeah. Can they do it? I think it's possible, but will they? I, I, I don't think so. And I think part of that is because, 
as Alex was mentioning, I mean, yeah, you're four back, but you're technically basically five back because you have to exceed their win total. You cannot tie with yeah. them. Both teams, yes, five, seven, three. We, we did not win the series against the Braves. They lost that three to four. Yeah, you won Don't the need last to call series. people dummies. Well, you lost the last series against them. The first series you lost. The season series. Yeah. Season series you lost, you, which is the tiebreaker. That's so, all that matters. So. And, and I, I, as much as the schedule does kind of favor itself for the Cardinals, I mean, they're kind of in a, a – low right now where it just even last night even with history I felt like that game was still not at like the top level that I want to see the Cardinals playing at so I'm not sure that they can just all of a sudden flip a switch and right the ship and with that tough road trip coming up I think it's gonna be tough for them to really just get hot at the right time and go on this incredible run I mean you're talking about them essentially basically probably needing to go like 10 and 1 in the in this 11 game stretch in terms of facing the Reds and facing the Pirates and at 11 games probably need to go 10 and 1 if you want a shot at doing that and the way they're playing right now I know that they're still playing decent baseball right now but it just doesn't feel like the intensity is there completely so I'm going to say they can't do it and I'm just not sure they're going to be able to catch the Braves and the Mets. Strangely I think the Cardinals might actually have the toughest schedule remaining out of these three teams because of that road trip at San Diego at the Dodgers and at the Brewers now around those that what is it eight game stretch they got a bunch of crap like it's five against Cincinnati it's another six at the end of the season against Pittsburgh so you surround that eight game stretch with nonsense against teams that do not care at this point in the season but this is what the Mets have remaining they've got four against the Pirates three against the Brewers then they've got three against the Oakland A's who have stopped trying the Marlins for two they don't care the Nats for three they don't care and you got two more against or three more against the Braves head-to-head That's the Mets schedule. Basically, the two series that matter for them at the Brewers for three, at the Braves for three. The Braves' remaining schedule, Phillies for seven games, the Nats for six, the Mets for three, and the Marlins for three. So the Brewer, or excuse me, the Braves and the Cardinals uh, remaining schedules are kind of similar in that they've got one stretch of games that really matters and then the rest kind of stink. The Mets are the team that I... If they're the team that we all think that they are, they should go on a run down the stretch. They should be able to dominate this schedule that remains outside of those two series against the Brewers and the Braves, and really the one series against the Braves, because they should be better than this Brewers team. They should be at this point. So if I had to project, I do not believe that the Cardinals will get this, because I think at least one of those two, the Mets or the Braves, will finish strong, and that's going to prevent the Cardinals from being able to get up to that number two seed. But the fact that we're even talking about this at this point in the season, after what we saw in the first half where they opened up the second half of their schedule at 50 and 44 to now have even a realistic shot at this is pretty remarkable and speaks to the quality of baseball that we've seen from the Cardinals, basically dating back to that second game in the Toronto Blue Jays series. Yeah, I mean, I didn't expect this at all this season. I honestly thought they'd be fighting with Milwaukee just to win the NL Central until, of course, the trade deadline and the Josh Hader thing. Um, But, yeah, I mean, the fact that you're able to speak of this is remarkable in itself. Uh, The one thing I will say that does leave that possibility open is, as we've seen for the Cardinals, sometimes when it looks like it's an easy opponent, that's when those teams kind of sneak in and beat the opponent that assumes it's going to be easy. Cardinals had that happen to them already in a stretch where we were starting to wonder if we should be concerned. And I know Atlanta lost last night, I believe to San Francisco. I don't know what the Mets did, but they lost as well. Did they? So, I mean, 
that's the thing. You you might not have, or you might have a favorable schedule, which you could say that about the Cardinals. I actually like the fact that the Cardinals are going up against some really quality opponents because that might bring the best out of the Cardinals. And the fact that the Mets are going with an easy schedule the rest of the way, maybe that benefits St. Louis. And, and I'll say this too: the fact of the matter that look, do I think they have a shot? Yeah. Well, will they get there? I don't believe so. But the fact of the matter that they were able to go on that stretch, put themselves into the level of that first year we talked about where they are now one of those teams that you view as or maybe not in that first year but at the edge of that second kind of on that 1B tier to where you view them as a legitimate contender now mm-hmm. and that's not to take anything away from that if they don't get the buy they're not going to be a contender by any means no they've put themselves into that conversation and they weren't up at that point by the time in that Toronto series I think in that Toronto series it was kind of they were still trying to find their footing to kind of take off and then they got the Toronto series where they've somehow earned a split and then they get the trade deadline where they get these two trades that win and now we talk about them as legitimate contenders and I think it just proves more to what the Braves and Mets did at the start of the season that they have the potential to hold off the Cardinals. And by the way, I, I know that some will probably ask, like, why does it matter? Like, Who, who cares? You're, you're going in that first series against one of, most likely, the Phillies, Padres, or Brewers. Those are the three teams that are in contention for that spot to be able to play against you in the first round. The reason why it matters is because even the best teams go into any individual series with like a 60% chance to win. Like I, I, I know that sounds strange because we think of baseball as like the best team's going to advance. Man, these things can be so fluky in a three-game set. One thing goes wrong for you. A pitcher has a blow-up inning. A bad play goes against you. A bad call goes against you even. And suddenly you're down one to nothing and you're fighting for your life and you've got two games left and you don't have your best pitcher on the mound. So this, th- this stuff can change so quickly. The reason why it's so important is because you just you change the math instead of playing that, even if you call it a 60 40 series against one of those three teams that we mentioned. Now, suddenly you have just skipped. You've advanced past that round and now you just have two series that are, let's say, 50 50 to be able to advance to the World Series. That's why it matters. So that's that's what the Cardinals would like to have in their favor. You're just helping yourself mathematically. I just don't think that they're going to be able to do it. Unfortunately, I hope I'm wrong. Of course, all of us are rooting for them to be able to get to that number two seed, but they're just they're running out of runway now. And I know we had this conversation a couple of weeks ago about how much does it really matter in terms of giving pitchers extra days off. Now, I do think maybe not so much on the pitchers. It does allow you to kind of plan it a little bit better and give you a bit of an advantage in that series. But also the fact of matter that getting Golding Darn out off their feet for an extra three, four days, I think that's Absolutely. crucial. And I heard BT say it on the fa- I think it was yesterday on the fast lane or two days ago. Uh, he was asked by, I think it was Jamie, what do, what have you seen in Goldie that's changed? And he said he just looks tired. And and the Cardinals have tried to do that in season by getting him some days off, by DHing him and giving him a day off. But if you can get like three off days in a row, that'll be crucial just to get Goldie and Arnott on everybody, even Albert off his feet to where they can come in and now they're basically fully rejuvenated to go on a best of five game series. And I think that's important too. Well, like you said, BK, it gives you an opportunity to set things up the way you want it. And I think that's the most benefit you can ask for going into a playoff run is setting things up how you feel is best for your team. I did want to get to one thing that Greg Gamsinger said earlier today because we've mentioned a number of times we think that the Cardinals right now are kind of in that even if you don't want to put them in tier one with the Dodgers they're definitely in that tier two at this point with the Braves and the Mets part of why is because their bullpen stepped up here's Greg Amsinger and talking about what he saw from that group last night the last three innings the Cardinals relievers Hicks Gallegos Helsley, they got nine out, six via strikeout. That was, uh, I, it just planted a seed in the back of my mind going, Cardinals can win the World Series with stuff like that coming out of the bullpen. They can win the World Series. I believe in swing and miss stuff. And I've always wondered if the bullpen 
is good enough for the Cardinals when you compare their bullpen to the others in the National League. If their stuff looks as good as it did last night, especially Gallegos as the bridge to Helsley, the Cardinals would swing and miss stuff coming out of that pen could win the World Series. That's how important that is. Now imagine if instead of Palante last night in that spot, you've got Steven Matz. Or Jojo Romero. Or maybe uh, Quintana. Like those are the options that you could have available to you going into the postseason. Hicks guy goes Helsley looks pretty good right now. I know that Hicks still Hicks makes my people concern. nervous. I'm right there with you. You never know what you're going to get from him, right? It's the uh, you're, you're sticking your hand into the the hat and you don't know what's coming out. Could be a rabbit, could be a piece of crap. Could go either way. We're oh. not really sure which way it's going to go. <laughs> Who puts <laughs> a piece of crap in a hat? <laughs> what games are you playing? It's like when the fast lane took out all of the names from the hat and they kept taking the same names. That's that's Jordan Nix sometimes. You're not really sure. It's a grab bag. But he's been pretty good lately. He's been pretty good when it comes to what he's been able to produce for you and gives up more contact than you'd like. But in the month of September, uh, he's got in this month, eight strikeouts and six and two thirds innings. The swing and miss stuff is just back. And it, honestly, more than being back, it, it's here for the first time in this kind of a meaningful way. He is definitely a player that you can trust in the sixth or seventh inning to be able to get you some outs. The Cardinals bullpen is starting to come together. Steven Matz is going to make one more rehab stint tonight. Sounds like he could be with the Cardinals starting this weekend. Where are you guys at on the bullpen now? I love Helsley. Gallegos always gives me the the little jitters, but he's looked really good, so it's hard for me to argue that. I'm very concerned with Hicks because Hicks is one of those guys that yeah, he looks awesome, but when the when the when you need him the most, and when you sit back and say he's got this, that's when it seems to blow up, and that's what I'm concerned about with Jordan Hicks. But if you've got Mats, if you've got Quintana, and then I, I think it was John Denton that put the report that Marmol basically had a conversation with Cabrera, told him like, hey, we need you back to that 97, 98 mile an hour stuff. Now it has not gone well for him in Memphis, so maybe you're not going to get back there. I think you need one more. And Tanner, you've said that all along. Like you need that big three. And I know it looks that way right now with Hicks, but he still makes me nervous. 11 and two thirds innings, nine hits, two walks, 14 strikeouts. That's what he's done over his last eight outings. This is the guy that we've been waiting for. And I know there's a lot of history prior to that. That makes us nervous. And it is totally earned because if you go back prior to this stretch that I just put the obvious end points in for, doesn't look nearly as good in terms of what he was able to produce in the 10 games prior he allowed 13 runs in 11 and a third inning so there's there's real reason is it going to revert back to that are we going to get back to that version of Jordan Hicks before the end of the season I get it I'm not saying that you're wrong by any stretch of the imagination but he's definitely their best option right now I, I, he's the best option right now, but I, I'm kind of with Alex. He he scares me in terms of relying him on. A, I don't feel for some reason. And look, I know what the numbers say, but for some reason, I don't have faith in the bullpen. Not faith, excuse me. I just don't trust the bullpen right now. If it came down to a playoff series, and I don't know why that is. It's maybe it's just a gut feeling that I have. But last year, I knew, I felt confident in the bullpen that you had because I saw long sample sizes of guys that had success. I mean, Garcia was awesome basically since he got acquired. McFarland was awesome. Gallegos Cabrera and Ray is the the Ray is lost a little bit of trust by the end yeah. of the year. But those five guys you had seen for an entire season 
be really effective for you, or three of them for an entire season, two of them for half of a season. They're very effective for you out of the bullpen. For Hicks, it's just been kind of a little bit of a stretch run. Jojo Romero, who you mentioned, just like a six-game stretch. Steven Matz, though I love the idea of him coming out of the bullpen in the playoffs, I got to see him do a different transition from starter to coming out of the bullpen, and I don't care what the numbers say in the minor leagues how he looks. I got to see it up here first. And then the same is for uh, Jordan Hicks. It's a small sample size that I've seen successful so far. I like what I've seen. But I still feel nervous when he comes in. And even last night, last night I was getting nervous. Didn't think he had the chance to get out of that, and he ultimately did. Right now, the two guys that I know what I'm going to get is Giovanni Gallegos. I know that he gives Alex the jitters. I feel comfortable with Giovanni Gallegos and then Ryan Helsley. That's the only two. And I think you still need two more guys that are going to take that role, and that's what they have to figure out, in my opinion, still. And it's still. I think it has to be basically from now until the end of the season that Hicks is still effective, and whoever that other lefty is, Matt's when he comes back for me to buy into the bullpen. In 15 minutes, how much is the cap going to play into the Blues' decision with Ryan O'Reilly? Jamie Rivers gave us the money on such a deal yesterday. Doug Armstrong talked about well, the cap plays into all of these decisions. We will hear from him coming up at 1230. But coming up next, NFL quick hitters, including big game tonight in the NFL between the Chiefs and the Chargers. Which side do you like in this one? And what are we going to learn about both of these teams as they made some big-time changes in the offseason? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Quick hitters, let's start with tonight's game. Chargers versus the Chiefs in Vegas right now. The Chiefs are a four-point home favorite. The over-under is set at 54, which is the highest point total going into this week. Alex, this is going to surprise you a lot, I'm sure. You're taking the Chargers. You're, you're your boy, the Justin Chiefs Herbert. in this game, minus the four points. It started out a four and a half, actually. It did jump a little bit, and then it came back down to earth. What are you expecting in this game between the Chiefs and the Chargers, two teams that are very different than the last time that we saw them play against each other? As you mentioned, I'm expecting a high point total in this game. I'm expecting an air it out type game also because one, the run defense for the Chargers looked really good in week one. And I understand it's Oakland with uh, Josh Jacobs, not Oakland, Vegas. I do it all the damn time, but I, I, we know who you were talking about. Buddy. They're going to be very difficult. I, mean, I was lost. <laughs> they're going to be very difficult to deal with when you've got Mac and Bosa for that defense. The part for me and why I'm leaning more towards the Chargers is because I think the Chargers secondary defense is better than the Chiefs secondary defense. And that's the part that I'm fascinated by with this one tonight, because I think both teams are just going to throw the ball the entire game. But without Keenan Allen, how does Herbert kind of offset that value without his number one receiver. Yeah, see, I think this has the chance to be, I, I would take the over. I know Heist was kind of leaning towards the end when we had a chance to talk with him earlier in the show. I, I think this is going to be one of those high explosive offensive games. And I, I do like the defense for the Chargers, but I mean, I saw what the Chiefs did in week one and how well balanced they were in terms of just spreading the ball out with Patrick Mahomes and where he was throwing the football. I think without Keenan Allen, it hurts the Chargers a little bit. I, I could see this game being in terms of just excitement level surrounding it. First Thursday night game First appearance between Al Michaels and Kirk Herbstreit. I could see this being kind of like 
what the Bills Chiefs game was last year, where it's high scoring going back and forth all the way until the very end. Or honestly, like that Monday night football game a couple years back yeah. between the Chargers, or not the Chargers, excuse me, the Chiefs and the Rams, when it was basically nobody could stop anybody because both offenses were really good. I think that's how tonight's game kind of goes. Last year when these two teams met, Travis Kelsey on Thursday night football had 10 receptions for 191 yards and two touchdowns. If you remember, that was the one that the Chiefs ended up winning in overtime with a big Travis Kelsey play down the middle of the field. I think it's another big night for Travis Kelsey. Alex, I know you said their run defense was better. The Chargers was against the Raiders. I didn't feel that way. They gave up five yards per carry. I felt like the Raiders abandoned the run a little bit. That's the other thing that I'm expecting. The Chiefs do have, I believe, more of a commitment to the run this year. Now, there's an injury on the offensive line for Kansas City. Uh, Trey Smith, one of their best offensive linemen, could be out for this one. If he is, that changes some things. And now suddenly your right side of your offensive line has Andrew Wiley, who's mm, less than great at right tackle, a fill-in at right guard. Between Bosa and Mack, those two guys could eat on the right side of the Chiefs' offensive line. So be a little cautious of that if he ends up being out. I think he'll try to play, but we'll see on that one. I do think that the running game, though, could be a factor in this one. Travis Kelsey, obviously going to be a factor. I think that the Chiefs end up winning it. I do like the over as well, Tanner. I think Mike Williams has a chance to have a big game on the outside. What do you make of the spread? You like Chiefs minus four? I do. I think that's about right, but I like the Chiefs to win by like six. I think I like Chargers plus four. I, I get it. I I could see this being like a 34-31 type of game. It Mm -hmm. wouldn't surprise me. I wouldn't bet the um, spread in this one. I would would prefer to go with the over-under. I I would take the over. I Um, last weekend I probably shouldn't just bet. Yeah, you should stay away from spreads probably the rest of your life, buddy. That's that's the way that I would look at it. Let's continue with the Sunday slate, looking at that. Guys, what do you think is the game where we're going to learn the most about those two respective teams, given who are playing head-to-head? For me, I I personally am going to the Dolphins versus the Ravens game. That's the one that immediately comes to mind because I don't think we learned anything really about the Dolphins last week. I just think the Patriots are bad and the Dolphins didn't really need to do a whole lot. In the end, they had to go for fourth down to be able to win that game. And so I'm a little more cautiously pessimistic about the Dolphins going into the season than I was prior to week one. I thought the offense would look better. And the Ravens, I mean, they, they played against a horrible opponent in the Jets who couldn't move the ball at all. I don't think you learn much there either. One thing I'm going to be keeping an eye on, does Lamar Jackson run? Because last week he ran like four times in the game in total. I am wondering how much of that was by design of him saying, I'm I'm not running until I get my contract. And if you guys want to give me my contract, I'll start running again. I wonder how much of that was in in play for him. And to that point, I I think I mentioned this on Monday. Like one of the things that really stood out to me was I felt like he was trying the deep ball a lot as if that was something that he was trying to show to the Baltimore Ravens as well. The deep ball. He was pretty good at it. I wonder if that was their argument in the contract negotiations. Like, ah, well, you can't throw the ball, you know, because every time you get into contract negotiations, one side's trying to find the worst about the other so that you can negotiate that contract. Yep. I wonder if that was their sticking point in presentations of like, hey, too you, much value you, with yeah, your legs. You can run all you want, but you're not going to last as long as we need you to unless you throw the ball more. And Heist mentioned it earlier, the Dolphins do have a very good secondary. Oh. So this is going to be an interesting game. That's the one that I've got my eye I've on. I've got like four of them, but I don't want to steal them. The main one for me is Monday's game, the Vikings and Eagles, because both of those teams I'm very high on, and I know they're both NFC teams in different divisions, but I also also view both of those teams as teams that 
could get in the playoffs. If not, I, I'd give the Vikings more of the edge over the Eagles if they could compete for a Super Bowl this year. But we're about to find out how good both of those teams truly are. The Vikings were the most impressive NFC team yeah. to me in week mm-hmm. one. And I don't I, know that they'll be the best, but in week one, they were the most impressive. To Eagles me. were very impressive to me also. So that's why to see the let's Agreed. see how Jalen Hurts handles that. And can Kirk Cousins handle the other team's defense? I like both those games. The other one that I want to throw out here and the one I'll be definitely focusing on in the 12 o'clock hour, Buccaneers and Saints. And I, I think, it's look, a good one. it was impressive what Tampa did. I thought the offense was somewhat impressive. I know you guys weren't there because they didn't finish in the red zone. They could have easily just absolutely demolished the Cowboys, and they already did that in that game on Sunday Night Football. And then the Saints, I mean, we talked about there's some people starting to say, hey, they've got the best roster in the NFC. They could be one of the surprise teams. I'm not sold on them. Jameis Winston and that team struggled early on offensively in week one against the Atlanta Falcons. Can they come out and do something against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers? I think you're going to learn a lot about who the favorite's going to be in the NFC South in this week two matchup. Final thing here as we go through some NFL quick hitters. Who is the player that is under the most pressure to succeed going into week number two? For me, I've got an obvious one in my mind. I think it's Trey Lance. The San Francisco 49ers schedule opened up with Chicago and Seattle. That should have been two of the easiest teams that they could possibly have to open things up this year. Coming up, it gets a lot tougher. You're going to Denver next week, and then you are at home against the L.A. Rams. If they start 0-2 potentially with a loss this week against the Seattle Seahawks, and then you've got those two games, you could easily start 0-4. And by week five, Jimmy Garoppolo would be inserted, in my opinion, as the starting quarterback. I think Trey Lance needs to get it going this week. Last week, you've got the built-in excuse of, yeah, but look at the weather. There's no excuses this week, man. This Seattle defense, I understand they played well. I think there was a lot of emotion that went into that game against uh, Russell Wilson and the Denver Broncos. You're at home. You're playing against a team that it should be inferior to you. Trey Lance better get it going this week. Yeah, I mean, my team's not so much like he's going to lose his job or anything, but I think the the player slash team that under the most pressure is Rodgers with the Packers. I mean, if you lose to Chicago at home and start the season 0-2, like, look, I understand you have inferior wide receivers, but at some point you got to stop complaining about guys who can't catch the ball and start being better. Which team has better receivers in that game? (laughs) It's tough. Very tough, actually. I just, like I said, Packers, Rodgers isn't losing his job anytime soon, but like at some point, if you start 0-2 and lose to the Bears, you can't sit there and complain about your receivers not being good anymore. I think mine's kind of a combination. It also goes along with, like, he's not going to lose his job. It's Joe, Burrow's in, Joe Burrow in the entire. Nah, he did it, too. It's not I, just me. It. Joe Burrow in the entire Cincinnati Bengals offensive line. Because Dallas, though, they're probably not going to do anything offensively. I mean, their defense still looked pretty good. Michael Parsons looked unbelievable. I he love was that insane. guy. Uh, so they're going to get pressure on Joe Burrow. Now, can that offensive line, is that going to be what we talked about, patience or panic? Can they kind of step up this week against the Dallas Cowboys defense, in which Cincinnati should win that game? But if Joe Burrow turns the ball over and then he's going to be on his back and eating a lot of turf, there's a lot of pressure on that O-line and Joe Burrow already in week two, in my opinion. I think some of this is on Burrow. I I think what we might learn this year is that Joe Burrow just holds onto the ball really long. And that's not necessarily like the worst thing in the world, but it does open him up to what we saw last week where he was sacked seven times and turned the ball over five times in the game. He he has a better offensive line. This is a better unit than what he had a year ago. And it still happens. If it happens again against the Cowboys, we're going to have to start having the conversation of maybe this is just... Every quarterback's got something. Mahomes, his his footwork gets off sometimes. Josh Allen's just always going to make some weird decisions that result in interceptions going the other direction. It wasn't his fault. It was the receiver's fault. There's always stuff that happens, individual things that you can complain about, even for the best quarterbacks in the league. For Joe Burrow, it might just be that he takes too many sacks. 
And that's something that over the next couple of weeks, I think we are going to learn about him. Coming up in 15 minutes, we're diving into the junk drawer. But next, how much is next year's cap going to play into the Blues decision with Ryan O'Reilly? Is that what they're waiting on to find out? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. So there's a hope and a belief that in a year or two, the salary cap is going to take a big jump. And then if it continues to jump like it did prior to that, that's three, four, five million a year. You know, we could be at $100 million before we know it here in a salary cap when these guys are two, three years into the deal. So it's a projection on the cap. It's a projection that, that we believe these players are going to continue to maintain their level and get better. In 15 minutes, we're diving into the junk drawer, but that audio was Doug Armstrong yesterday talking about what this extension for Jordan Cairo means for the Blues in the long term. And the hope is, the belief is, as he said, there's going to be a big jump, and it jumps by about $5 million per year, just as it did prior to the pandemic, kind of shutting everything down, keeping the, the cap flat, and that really changed a lot of what the Blues were able to do. Here's Jamie Rivers the other day talking about what he believes it would take to re-sign Ryan O'Reilly. I think these two things, Alex, might be a little related. For me, it's a four-year deal. I think you overpay as far as term is concerned, and you give him a longer amount of time with your club. That way you can bring the AAV down a little bit. So, so four bulk, years, $25 million. Bulk, I would Four years, $25 I think it's going to be more around five. Okay. I think it'd be around $5 million contract. So I'd be, you know, four years, $20 million. And, you know, that's a guaranteed chunk of money for Ryan O'Reilly. $20 million is a heck of a lot of money, but you're getting four years out of the player and you're lowering the AAV. So Doug Armstrong saying he's hoping that it's about a $5 million increase in the salary cap. Jerry, Jamie Rivers is saying he thinks it might be about a $5 million per year deal for Ryan O'Reilly. Are you connecting the dots? Putting two and two together. Alex, am I out over my skis if I say, if the cap goes up, then the Blues re-sign Ryan O'Reilly. If the cap stays flat, then Ryan O'Reilly, unless they can do some cap gymnastics, is likely to end up elsewhere. I think you're not anywhere near far over your skis with this one. I think you're on the slopes the correct amount because I think that's exactly how Doug Armstrong and Ryan Miller are viewing this for the Blues. What's the cap going to do? Because as much as they want to re-sign Ryan O'Reilly, which I'm sure they do, they're viewing this with the same excuse that they had about David Perron, about Alex Petrangelo. You only have so many funds that you can allocate to certain players and you have to roster a full team. They've got 13 guys, I think, next year and have about like six and a half somewhere around that cap space. You're not going to be able to put a full team on the ice with that amount of money if you're giving O'Reilly $5 million. If the cap goes up more than a million, then I think that's when they can look at Ryan O'Reilly and say, okay, we have money now that we can look at, but we have to do this in the right pace. I do still think there will be cap gymnastics done by Doug Armstrong because as Jeremy Rutherford said a couple of days ago with us, he's one of the, he's one of the best at it in the national hockey league of being able to move money out so that he can put money in and keep a team competitive. But a lot of that is going to surround what does the cap do 
going into next season. And for what it's worth over at Cap Friendly, and somebody on the text line asked about this, they said you'd think that the salary cap would have to increase every year to match inflation. That's just not what it's done in recent years. Since the pandemic hit, it was at $81.5 million in 2020. That was the salary cap. It was also that way in 2021. It was also that way in 2022. It increased by $1 million. First time that it's increased in three years this year. And it just increased to 82.5. It increased by a million bucks. That was it. The projection right now is that's what it's going to be the next two years as well. 83.5 next year, 84.5 the year after that. That's where their projections are. That could change. If there is something that they're seeing right now revenue-wise that would lead Doug Armstrong or presidents of hockey operations elsewhere to believe, hey, we're going to get a bigger spike in the cap than what people are projecting outside of the NHL, that is a great thing for St. Louis because there are very few teams around the league that are as cap-strapped as this Blues team is right now. It's one of the reasons why, Alex, when we were going into the offseason, we were all talking about, hey, they got plenty of money to play with. And they did, but just for this year. The problem was future years because you have such a significant spike coming for both Jordan Cairo and Robert Thomas. You're eating into $12 million of your cap next year that you didn't have to attribute this season with both of those guys going from $2 million to $8 million against the cap. So, yeah, this is going to get tough. And if you end up having that extra $5 million that was not previously accounted for because this cap goes up, I think that's how you easily fit Ryan O'Reilly into this this equation. If you don't, though, man, you're right. Doug Armstrong has been good at moving money in the past. It has never been harder to move money, though, than it is right now. And I think we saw that. We learned it the hard way this offseason where they could not remove Marco Scandella's money from the t- from the cap sheet. Or they Vladdy's. could not remove Vladdy's cap, sh- cap uh, hit from the, from the sheet. And I don't think they found any takers for a reasonable deal on Tory Krug either because we heard those rumors going mm-hmm. into the draft as well. So... If they don't increase the salary cap, I do think it is going to continue being as hard as it was this offseason to be able to move some of that money. And it might not matter how good he is at doing it. Probably. You you got to look at the players that you'd be talking about moving there. And, and I think, look, I don't it's not that I want him to be moved, but I do think you have to look at Tory Crew going into next season. If you get to that point of cap gymnastics and say like six and a half million dollars, if he performs really well for you, maybe you'd be able to find a taker with that. And Scott Perunovich slides in. But again, what is Scott Perunovich? Can you find a taker for that money? Does that help you keep Ryan O'Reilly? The matter of the fact is, going into next season, you've got $33.8 million tied up in your forward group. And that, according to Cap Friendly, is only talking about six guys. And one of those six is Nathan Walker. So your five of your top six, because I'm not putting Nathan Walker in my top six, five of your top six are taking up about $33 million. And if the cap's only sitting at 83, you got $27 million tied up in defensemen, and you've got $6 million tied up in a goaltender. Sooner or later, the math is not going to work out for you to be able to make everything work. So that's where things really get difficult, and that's where you really do consider, are you going to give Ryan O'Reilly $5 million for four years? Would he take that? And how does that set up competitiveness for your roster moving forward? Somebody on the text line asked an interesting question. Guys, why would they name Ryan O'Reilly captain if they did not intend for him to stay under just about every circumstance possible? I I think that sometimes we fall into that trap of because somebody is named captain, that means that they're a forever blue. Guys, since 1990, do you know who the longest tenured captain is for the Blues? This is over the last 30 years, the longest tenured captain for the Blues. I'll say Backus. 
I don't think it was back. This was only about like, it was like six years. That feels well. Since he asked this question, I feel like six might cover. <laughs> I think I think it might be Pronger because Pronger had it. McKenna's got it, and Pronger got it again up until two thousand and four. I'll say it's either Pronger or Petrangelo. It's a tie. Pronger and Backus. You guys were both correct. Pronger from 97 to 2002 and Backus from 11 to 2016. Both of them were six-year captains. Like, it doesn't mean that you're a forever blue. Backus ended up going elsewhere. And, like, that that's the thing. Do I think that they want Ryan O'Reilly to stay? Yeah, I think in his heart of hearts, Doug Armstrong would love to have Ryan O'Reilly just never play anywhere else. Have a blue note on his chest for the rest of his career. But money is a big part of this, man. This is a business. And if you get to the back end of his career and he's making five plus million dollars and you also have Shin making six and a half million dollars and they're not the same player, but they're both that gritty style. They kind of project at the end of their careers to be similar to what Alex Steen was at the end of his career. Again, different players, but that same gritty veteran leadership style that they bring to the table. They have similar values in that respect. Alex, can you have two guys that are playing that Alex Steen role that he had at the end of his career making five-plus million dollars later in their careers? I mean, you can, but not in a flat cap world. I'm, You know, the matter of the fact, when you look at Toronto, Toronto's got the top dogs being paid their amount of money, and then their bottom guys are Wayne Simmons making $750,000 and Jason Spezza making $700,000. That's because the team put too much money towards individual players. You can, but you're in a circumstance that you have to have overperforming or outperforming young players that are playing in your top nine. If Jake Neighbors comes on scene and becomes a 25 goal scorer, well, then guess what? He's making the minimum for the next three seasons. Now you can keep Ryan O'Reilly for $5 million. If Zachary Bolduke comes in and plays like Tage Thompson did with Buffalo in his first year or last season, Now you can do that. But if those two guys don't perform to the level that you need them to, and Brandon Saad is performing okay, then I don't think you can justify that because you're going to have to offset more in your top six and look at the back end of those contracts. Like Braden Shen's contract, I think, is going to be fine because he's he's an asset that plays to this level. A lot of people are arguing Ryan O'Reilly is going to slow down. I don't think that's the case because the guy keeps himself in such good shape. He might not be the fastest but he offsets that with his stick play and his ability to play defense. But a lot of people will argue by year three, that's going to look like an awful contract. And do you want $12 million tied up in two players that are playing on your third line? That's the tough part is like not just $12 million for those two guys, but then you add in the four and a half million dollars to Brandon side, who's probably going to be a third line player. If not this year by certainly the end of this contract. And I think I still think it was a perfectly adequate contract to give out. I got no issues with them giving sod what they no, gave him. Um, but by 2025, and that's kind of what we're talking about here, and they have to worry about that. Doug Armstrong, that's his job. Are you really willing to have $16 million tied up to your third line with Sod, Shin, and O'Reilly? Because that might be what it ends up becoming. I don't know. That's a lot of money to be ho- invested into that I think spot. the hope there is either Shin or O'Reilly are performing like a second-line center. And that's I agree, but I, I can't 
tell you with any certainty that that. they will be in three years. You know, I I would have projected three years ago that other stuff went a different way for the Blues. I would not project that they would not have Alex Petrangelo on the roster right now, for example. I would project O'Reilly would still be a second line center at best for you in three years. Braden Shen. 34, 35, though, man. It's just, I I, I don't know how. It's just the way that he plays. I think he would be fine. The one that's hard is Braden Shen, and it's not because he doesn't play well. He competes all the time. The problem is he plays that physical brain. Brand, that's going to wear and tear on your body by age 34, 35. I mean, look, he, he had, to, he had to, to crawl through the end of the season because he had three broken ribs. So he just plays a physical brand. I think you can still be competitive with it. But again, I think it all ties into your younger players that are on entry level contracts outperforming what they're being paid coming up in 15 minutes who's the player that needs to step up for the cardinals down the stretch the athletic did a piece on this they didn't have the cardinals listed so we'll give you our nominees coming up in 15 minutes the junk drawer those coming up next we're right back to the pk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn Let's open it up. The Junk Drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Together Credit Union. Pay yourself with every purchase. Open and achieve it. Checking account today. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Tanner, what do you have for us today in the junk drawer, my Guys, man? people are ruining hot dogs again, and I'm oh, sick and tired of this, this blasphemy. Is it the popsicle? Yeah, no, we did this it's yesterday, not the popsicle. Man. It's not the popsicle. How else can you ruin it's a hot dog? being ruined again, though. The Rocket City Trash Pandas, I don't know what the hell they're doing. That sounds They are bringing back their famous dumpster wrap, which will be back for their playoff run if you're excited for some Trash Panda baseball. Two hot dogs, crispy fries, homemade chili fried jalapeno caps, and chipotle ranch all bundled in a cheese quesadilla. Wrong. That is that's what? ruining hot dogs. So a chili dog and a, ch- and a cheese quesadilla? Essentially. Uh, it is two hot dogs, crispy fries, homemade chili, fried jalapeno caps, and chipotle ranch all bundled in a cheese case. What's the problem with honest? this? I was going to say, this sounds good. That sounds amazing. That, that sounds, sounds awesome. No, no. <laughs> that Actually, they, like, I would definitely order that. Do they you chop up the hot dogs? You should do they, mix the fries and the hot dogs. It? No, Dude, they're just two me? full hot dogs. Just fries can be there. mixed so with it's everything. Like in a, it's a burrito almost. A hot kind dog of, burrito. Yeah. That no, sounds fantastic. Dude, hot dogs and fries are great. You eat fries with hot dogs. Yeah, but not together. What are you talking about? Your food shouldn't see, touch this like is, that. This is something. Yeah, see, you're like my wife in this, where like food can't touch. Uh, it's yeah, all going I'll, to the same spot. I'll mix the corn and the mashed potatoes oh, while I'm eating. No, not mm, a big deal. No, no, I prefer different. when I have like fried potatoes. I prefer to put the fork in the steak, then the fried potato, and eat them at the same time. Oh, you see, want I, all I of those tastes? On that. Wait, say that again. You put the fried steak potatoes, in the... a steak. I'll take a. A piece of steak, I'll take a piece of fried potato, I'll put it on the fork, and I'll eat it together. Yeah, no, you're no. a serial killer. That's yeah. definitely not no, something. That, that no. is. It all goes together. I don't understand this. Why does why do things have to not touch? Those are psychopathic tendencies. Yeah. No. I'm not down You're a psycho. That. But, no, that's true. But I, I don't have an issue with this. Like, burritos, cool. No problem whatsoever. There's certain things that can and cannot be eaten this way. This is consumed correctly. I, I actually like this idea. I think that the, the Cardinals should get on the phone with the, what yeah. is it, the Trash Pandas? Yes, sir. If I, I think the Cardinals and the Trash Pandas should get a collaboration. Yeah. If like the food is in the same category, like, it like could be mixed. I like a good chili dog, but I don't want, like, fries there and, like, jalapeno stuff on what? it. What? There's nothing wrong with that. 
65780 is your comfort service sex line from the 314. T-Bone just Googles hot dogs every day to see what the news of the day is for the hot yeah, dogs. Yeah, and this happened to pop up today. <laughs> Sadly, it's usually disappointing news T-Bone's, when you look it up. T-Bone's dog update. Coming up in 15 nah, minutes. you wrong, dog. We're going to play T-Dog. a game of Believe It or Not. It is Tanner's favorite time of the week. Oh, yeah. Other than when he Googles what hot dogs are in the news. Be careful Googling that stuff. But next... Yeah. Who's the player that needs to step up down the stretch for the Cardinals? I think me and Tanner are on the same page here. I'm curious to see where Alex is. We'll hear from you as well next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. If Tyler O'Neill played the way he did last year, this year Cardinals would be trying to run down the Los Angeles Dodgers. That's how important he is. Tyler O'Neill can do a little bit of everything. Gold glove defender. He'll throw a guy out from left field. He'll make an incredible diving catch. He'll run through a wall. He'll hit a 500-foot bomb. He'll steal you a money bag. That's an important player to have, and it's almost as if they just got him back. So that's a major storyline to watch. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. That was Greg Amsinger on with the morning show today. If you missed their conversation, check it out on their podcast page, 101ESPN.com, the free 101 ESPN app, all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. By the way, coming up in about 45 minutes, we're going to give you a chance to win a pair of tickets to see Luke Combs. So be sure to stay tuned until 145 for your chance to win a pair of tickets. It's going to be a tough ticket to come by. We've got your chance to win all week right here on 101 ESPN. Alex, I was reading earlier today over on The Athletic, and the reason why I wanted to play that cut from Greg Amsinger is because I think it relates to Jim Bowden's piece on the 13 major league players who need to step up as the postseason races heat up. For me... I think that the player that needs to step up down the stretch for the Cardinals is Tyler O'Neill. I want him to become until Dylan Carlson gets back your everyday center fielder where you feel confident that that guy can take that job and run with it. And then when Dylan Carlson gets back, if he's ready to go and he's hitting again, then he needs to be your everyday left fielder. That can be a legit two or five slash six hole hitter for you. And you feel confident that he is that extra bat that can be one of those quote-unquote big bats for you in the playoff run. That's who Tyler O'Neill was supposed to be for this team. It's who I think he can still be down the stretch for them. Who is your player that you would nominate as the guy that needs to step up for the Cardinals down the stretch? I mean, I think it has to be Tyler O'Neill because, I mean, he's the only other impactful bat, and I don't know if I can say this guy, but if it's not Tyler O'Neill, for me, it has to be Dylan Carlson. And I know he's injured because you can't really say, well, he's got to step up because he's injured. But when he comes back, he has to be able to play every day in your lineup. And apparently they think he's going to be back by the uh, the road trip that they're going to have for San Diego, Milwaukee, and uh, the Dodgers as well. And more so than Tyler O'Neill, I think it has to be Dylan Carlson. Because if you don't have Dylan Carlson, your outfield is a little bit of a concern for me. Especially be- defensively. Yeah. And I mean... Even offensively, Lars has dipped off a little bit. Corey Dickerson is still really good, but defensively scares the bejesus out of me when it comes to if Carlson's not available. So I really like the Tyler O'Neill one, but it has to be Dylan Carlson for me. Even last night, I don't know what they said on the broadcast. I was out at the game, but there was one ball that dropped in front of Tyler O'Neill that 
I think if he gets a good jump on that, he should have been able to catch it. Like, I think Bader catches it, and I think Dylan Carlson catches it as well. Yeah, he I, just doesn't seem to get the same reads in center field as he does in left. I think I remember Jim saying, too, that, like, you could tell he was a little hesitant about wanting to die yeah. for that ball. And that's the thing. Like, if you're playing center, you got to be willing to die for everything. And I don't know if Tyler's that guy. Yeah, I, I think both O'Neill and Carlson, it's got to be one of the two. And in my opinion, it's O'Neill just because I think we mentioned this when we were talking about Carlson being put in the Juan Soto trade conversations of what does Carlson's projections look like? And, and I know that it's such a small sample size when he comes back, so you can't really project. But Carlson always, to me, is going to be a good player. Even at his highest peak in his career, is always going to be just a good player that you look at, hits 260, has some pop in the bat. Tyler O'Neill, when he's right, is an MVP caliber player. And that's why I think I would say he's the guy for me down the stretch that's important to get going. Now, over his last 20 games, he's actually played pretty really well. well. Yeah, now his average isn't what it was like last year where he was hitting 280, but that's kind of more of what I expected. He's got an OPS above 963. He's got seven home runs, nine extra base hits. Uh, he's driven in 17, and he's drawing walks too, which is bringing up his on-base percentage. So, Would you be okay with that, by the way? If this is who Tyler O'Neill is, not just for the rest of this this year, but moving forward, he's a 250 hitter that gets on base at an okay clip. He's probably, like right now over his last 20 games, it's a 365 on base percentage. Everybody would sign up for that. Let's say it drops. It's down to like a 320 on base percentage, but he slugs 500 or better. Are you guys okay with that? If he's a mid to okay on base guy doesn't have a great batting average but hits for a good amount of power still is a 30 plus home run guy are you okay if that's what he settles in as yeah i think i'm okay with that mostly because of that 30 home run power and somebody who like if you're staying 250 for me i don't need you to be the mvp because i have two other guys that are performing and honestly i'd throw tommy yeah but not in the mvp talk but the third guy that i trust I just need you to be that fourth guy that I can trust. And that would be Tyler. And if that's him, absolutely. Yeah, I'm with you. I would probably take that. In my opinion, he should probably always be a guy that has like an 850 OPS. Like that should be him. That's yeah. a really good season for a guy that's like you mentioned, not going to get a, as high on basic clip as what he is now, but he should slug pretty well. And and is he going to go through stretches where it doesn't look pretty? Yeah, I think he will because he's just kind of a swing and miss guy when you look at his uh, plate approach. But yeah, I would take that. And I, I think as long as he becomes kind of that – guy that can kind of hit fifth for you in a lineup to where he can provide that power behind Goldie and Arnado. Yeah, I, I think that's the guy that you want. I just don't think he's, for whatever reason, been able to take that role and run with it this year. I would like to see him get going to where he hits fifth in your lineup against right-handed pitching. And against lefties, I like him kind of in that top two spot ahead of Goldie and Arnado. So speaking of the outfield, yesterday the Cardinals started Corey Dickerson in left. They had Alec Burleson in right, and Lars Newtbar got the start in center field. What did you guys make of that? I personally felt like it was a bit of an audition. I think they look at it as if we can get more out of more consistency out of Alec Burleson, we want him out there more because of that bat. Maybe it was just some reps there too of saying like, hey, somebody can fight for a DH spot if Albert Pujols isn't playing in one of those games against a righty. I felt like it was an open audition. That's kind of where I thought it was, too. I thought it was more of a trial game last night. I didn't think they'd go with both Newpar and Burleson in the lineup. We kind of talked about that yesterday before the game, and I thought you would do one of those in right field. But I think it was a good trial trial game for both of them. See what your left-handed bats look like. See what you like against they're going against a high-quality pitcher in Corbin Burns and see how they deal with that test. I think yesterday 
typically, I think when you get to like that road series, that road trip coming up, I think you'll see Tyler O'Neill against all those heavy right-handed arms that they potentially face in those series because I think he's a legitimate guy to put in the lineup against a right-handed pitcher. I think last night was, okay, let's just get Tyler O'Neill a day off and let's see how these lefties react to kind of this trial run because if Burleson's not going to be able to hit a guy like Corbin Burns or Newpar's not going to be able to hit a guy like Corbin Burns, it becomes a little bit tougher to put them into the lineup once you get to playoff time. I'm glad they're finding out now. I'm glad they're finding out against Corbin Burns in mid-September what these guys look like. I agree with both of you. For what it's worth, Corbin Burns does not have any splits. Like lefties hit the exact same against him as right-handed pitcher or right-handed hitters do. So there's a 612 OPS against lefties, 613 OPS against righties. There was no real split advantage for the Cardinals last night by having those left-handed bats in there. I think this was exclusively what you said, Alex. I think they want to find out, okay, what is Alec Burleson? Because they know Dylan Carlson is coming back sooner rather than later. So do we need this guy to continue to be around, or do we send him down whenever Dylan Carlson gets back? Is he going to be a part of our playoff mix? Is he somebody that can make contact against some of these high strikeout guys? Can he fit into that category of, hey, big-time strikeout pitchers coming up, got splits, lefty bat off of the bench would be helpful here, especially somebody that makes consistent contact. Because that's what he profiles as right now. Do you guys know so far in his major league career, he has zero strikeouts? Now, it's a small sample size. He's only had 13 plate appearances, but zero strikeouts thus far. That's encouraging. The numbers aren't great. 400 OPS. But I like the fact that he is connecting so far. And I think sooner rather than later, what they're hoping for is that he's putting those balls in play and eventually they're going to start dropping for him. So I agree, Alex. I do think that that was a bit of a open audition for them before Dylan Carlson gets back. The other guy that I've got my eye on right now is Nolan Gorman. He started two games over their last five. He's not really getting significant opportunities down the stretch. I mean, you look at their last like 15 games, he's getting some playing time at second. I think they now view him as not being as good defensively as Brendan Donovan, who made a tough play last night as well at second. I'm really curious to see how he fits into this mix as well. I wonder if he's getting the Paul DeYoung last year treatment where they're just kind of the point where like, hey, you know what? We we might we might have hit our end with Nolan Gorman this season, and if we have to use him, we will, but we don't have an opportunity for him to start right now. And kind of tied into Nolan Gorman is, what are they going to do with Juan Yepes? Because that DH spot against righties is one that I've got my eye on. Like Albert Pools is getting a lot of those opportunities right now. And I think that's what they're trying to figure out. Like, I think who they're do trying we have? to find who, who is going to be that guy. Is it Brendan Donovan? Is it Nolan Gorman? Is it going to be maybe a Juan Yepes? Do we have something here with Lars Newbar? Can Alec Burleson be the guy? I think it's an open trial th- right now for that DH spot in the playoffs I, against righties. I think Donovan's locked in as your second baseman because I think Tommy Edmonds, your everyday shortstop. I, I, I just personally feel like Nolan Gorman is about to get the Paul DeYoung last, uh, last year treat. Yeah, I, I don't think he's going to get that treatment just yet because I don't one. I don't know if you can do that on such a young player like Nolan Gorman, a guy that's a highly touted prospect. You got to try and keep his confidence up somehow. I think what you do, and I know this is going to be tough for some Cardinals fans to hear because they want to see Pools getting those starts against those right-handers. But I think the next they've got five games against the Reds. Four of those five are scheduled right-handers. Nolan Gorman should be in the lineup in all four of those games against right-handed pitchers, whether that be the second baseman, DH, rotated around. I think. And I've said this, once you reach that road trip that's coming up against Milwaukee, the Dodgers, and the Padres, you need to be throwing out your play-up lineup out there in those series to see what they look like and how everybody responds to that. I think the next five games, and again, four of those against right-handers, I think that's where the trial run should be for Nolan Gorman. What's he look like when he's getting every day, basically, 
at-bats against these right-handed pitchers against the Reds? Can he kind of turn this thing around to where then we can say, okay, maybe he's the DH for us, or maybe he's just a good left-handed bat that we trust to come off of our bench? Because right now, it does feel like he's getting kind of the Paul Young treatment where it's we don't trust him in the lineup because we're not sure he's going to do much for us. We don't trust him defensively. Oh, and then we don't really trust him off our bench either. And if you can just get one of those to where you feel comfortable with him as maybe a left-handed bat that comes off the bench, it adds another weapon to your uh, arsenal right now. And right now he's not really being used as that. Right now I just don't think they trust him. And I think you need to find out what you have him in this five-game set against the, the Cincinnati Reds. In his last 12 games, Nolan Gorman is four for his last 30. In that stretch, he has one walk. And 14 strikeouts. He's batting 130 with an OPS of 450. These are Paul DeYoung numbers. Small sample size. You hope that he's able to break out of this slump, but that's why he ain't playing right now. It's just because when he has been playing, he hasn't been producing. Mm -hmm. And I understand that they're trying to get Albert to 700. That is a more than understandable thing to do. Right now, you've got to be able to balance that with trying to find out what you have down the stretch. Cause you're also, if they are truly going for that number two seed, I know people are going to be mad at me for saying this. I'm not sure that this is the best way to deploy Albert pools down the stretch. I think the best way to deploy him continues to be using him when you've got a righty starter on the opposition, using him as a bench bat coming off against whatever that left-handed pitcher is. The first guy that you have an opportunity to face big spot. Albert's coming into the game. Yeah. Tonight. I think it's a little different because you've got a terrible opposing pitcher on the mound. Oh, he's trying out there, man. Chase Anderson has a 9 ERA. He's only started three games, I think. He is not a very good pitcher. If you want to throw Albert out there tonight because they've got a bad starter on the mound, totally cool with it. But in general, when you're going up against righties, I think you do need to find out what is Nolan Gorin? What is Lars Newpar? What is Alec Burleson? What is, we kind of know what Brendan Donovan is, but he needs to be getting everyday opportunities. Those lefty bats, that's what I want to see. Yeah, I, I mean, I think with, At least no, to start. I think with Nolan Gorman, they know he's not a second baseman because he's struggling there. And I, his bat has not played like a DH. So I think that's why it's to the point where it's like, hey, we just don't got a spot for you because if we truly are fighting for a bye, we need our best on the field every single game, and Nolan Gorman's just not there right and now. And that's what I was going to say. Is I think right now, if you were to ask me, what is your best lineup you're truly competing for that two seed? To me, Albert Pujols is the DH right now. He, yeah. He's a guy I Over trust. Burleson? Yeah, because mm-hmm. I just haven't seen enough at-bats for Burleson. You mentioned it's only 13 plate appearances, but that's why I say this five-game set is kind of still a trial run. I, I think after this five-game set... I mean, essentially, you're going into playoff mode the final yeah. stretch of the season because you it's against... need to know their roles. Yeah, everybody needs to know their role at that point. And if Albert Pulse is your best bat against right-handed pitching, I think Play him. as much as we said that that's not going to be his role going into the postseason, he gives you the most competitive at-bat and the bat that I trust most to be in the DH spot against right-handed pitching right now compared to everybody else on the roster. Somebody says, are you kidding me? Are you telling me that you wouldn't DH Pulse through all of the playoffs? If you're going up against Max Scherzer, I don't know. Like I, I don't. I, my honest answer to that is I don't know. That's Who, what I want to find out. Who's my other option? That's exactly. my question. And exactly. Right I, now, I want to find out what you have right now in mm-hmm. Alec Burleson because I don't know. He might be good. He's one of their top prospects in their system. And last year, the problem with the Juan Yepes experiment in the uh, wild card game is we literally did not know what he could do. <laughs> Mike Schilt didn't either. <laughs> Him, Mike <laughs> Schilt decided to keep in his pitcher to take a significant at bat and then removed his starter from the game in the next inning because he didn't trust Yepes. So let's find out what these guys are. I, I think that Pittsburgh Pirates series would be the moment if I'm Ollie, and I know you're fighting for that bye, but that's those six straight games against Pittsburgh. 
that's me telling my young players who wants to be an everyday player in the playoffs. But I need to learn it before then because I'm not going to learn anything I, against Pittsburgh. In that stretch against San Diego, L.A., and Milwaukee, that's when I learn. That's when I learn yeah, who but these guys your are. Your confidence can go up if you're at least getting some hits against some poor opponents in Pittsburgh. Rather, if I play you against those teams and you struggle, you might be shot for the rest of the season. October 1st, I need to know who my lineup is against right-handed pitchers. You've got four more games after that against Pittsburgh. By that point in time, if I'm trying to figure out who's starting for me after I've gone through that gauntlet against San Diego, L.A., and Milwaukee, I think something's gone awry. I I think you know what it is by the time you start the road trip. I I truly do because I that's a but you're not going to learn anything against Cincinnati. You got to figure out what Dylan Carlson is too. I, I think it's not so much about learning what they are, but it's just seeing something that builds confidence to where I then feel willing to at least experiment a little bit in that series. Right now. I think roles are defined. I think the roles are defined going into this red series. And I want to know, I think players need to know what that is. But when you start these playoff type series again on the road in Milwaukee, in LA, in San Diego, and unless someone like Gorman, like I said, I would start four of the five games somewhere on the, in this lineup, unless he shows a little bit of confidence, then yeah, I know his role is basically going to be buried on the bench in the playoffs. Coming up in 15 minutes, we've got to talk about Jordan Bennington. We've been pushing this topic off for the last, what, two weeks now? I'm sick of it. Does he need to finish the year as a top 10 goalie for us to believe in the Blues as a legit contender in the Western Conference? We'll talk about that coming up at 1.30, but next, it's Tanner's time. Believe it or not, here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Sit up on his chair and mimic the bird. That was weird. Flying away. Six five seven eight zero was the air comfort service text line. Say for but I didn't believe want to be it mean. or not. It might have been close to what I was thinking. I'll be T Bone and I were thinking the same thing. You want me to say, it, man? That's not, it's not meant for air consumption. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not meant for the air. I was just gonna say. Go ahead. Go for it. So say, I mean, I already there, dumped hey, you once. I don't want to do it again. You were mimicking a bird. <laughs> you had the peak. <laughs> Oh, that's not at all what I was thinking. But that's good. I wasn't prepared for that one at all. Six five seven eight. I was going to say sex line for believe it or not. I wasn't really sure, honestly. <laughs> Let's start out with this one, guys. Believe it or not, Albert Pujols will start Game One against a right-handed pitcher as your designated hitter in the playoffs. Let's play through this wild card. You would see, say, the Brewers, the Padres. Or the Phillies? Those are the three options, right? Yeah. As if the playoffs started a day, I think it would be the Padres, correct? Because the yeah. Phillies would take on Atlanta. Padres would probably be starting you Darvish in game one. Or Musgrove. Probably I think, Darvish. I think I'm going to say I believe this one. Either way, though. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I know we say that you want to play him the right way, but he looked decent against Corbin Burns last night. So I, the way I look at this is, what are your other options? And I don't think you have many other options in terms of the DH. So I'm going to say I'm going to believe this one as it stands today. Yeah, as it stands today, I'm going to believe this. I truly believe he's your best bat right now in the DH spot against right-handed pitching. I haven't seen it from, and you read off Gorman's numbers. Those were not those were Paul DeYoung-esque numbers, not impressive. Paul DeYoung definitely not going to be getting that start at the DH oh. spot. Burleson, Burleson just hasn't, I don't 
I don't know how the Cardinals view him yet because they haven't been able to really experiment with him yet to see if he can handle top-end right-handed pitching. I mean, he's one for three last night against Burns, which was a bit of a good sign. Uh, so I think it leads towards Pujols is the guy. And if Gorman's struggling, that means Donovan's starting at second base. So I think I'm going to believe this. Don't, how you, don't appreciate how you gave Paul DeYoung the BK treatment. Paul DeYoung, no. Sorry, man, but I saw he's batting .59 since August 14th. Kind of uh point five nine. Point five nine. Oh, damn. <laughs> it's like oh five nine. Yeah. there's a zero. I thought you said one five nine. I'm like, oh, okay, that's no, no, justifiable. No. I'm saying I believe it too. Oh man. How did I that hurt? I can't I believe that this is where we've arrived. I I can't believe it's it. Not the third most home runs on the team. Yeah, but I think like 13 of them yeah, have come against Lefties, Lefties. Yes. I get it but if you look at the righties I'm not sure how many are if he'd be at least top five for the rest of the team no he, he's the the thing is it's it's kind of a problem that he has arrived as your best option against right-handed pitchers because it, it's not as if he has been like very good against them if he was putting up these otherworldly numbers this is an obvious decision and you just throw him out there against whoever it is that you're facing and he just gets the most at-bats possible it's not what it's been. He's been okay against right-handed pitching. I do still have some concerns there, and it's a problem that none of these lefty bats have taken that from him. Like, that that should be a role that is up for grabs right now, but when Albert's chasing 700 and he's playing well enough and none of these other guys are, are reaching anywhere close to that level, he absolutely should be getting opportunities, and that's the problem. So I think you guys are right. Really curious to see what that looks like going into the playoffs against some of these higher velocity, like a U Darvish, a Joe Musgrove. You go into the series against Burns or Woodruff. You go into the series against the Phillies and you got like a, a Nola or a Cindergaard. Don't know if those are great options or great matchups for Albert Pools. Here's, here's another question for you. Let's say Gorman ends up getting back to being more of the Gorman that you know. Or gets, he starts. Let's say he gets, let me rephrase that because then I set it up the question poorly. Let's say that Gorman gets to a point where it's like him and Albert are putting up basically similar numbers against right handed pitching. Who do you start in the playoffs? And now the kicker in that, and I think it's what the Cardinals will weigh big time, is Albert and what, how he steps up in big games, in big moments. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, think, was... I think unless you basically beat out Albert. You can't tie him because to me, he's got a tiebreaker on you. Yep. If you're Gorman or Burleson, you've got to basically outperform Albert against right-handed pitching to I take agree. that spot. Because Somebody, the, one, the one thing that concerned me last year was how some of those young, inexperienced players performed in the playoffs. They, they felt like the stage was too big. Somebody on the text line makes a really good point. If Carlson gets back to normal against right-handed pitching, then Dickerson or Donovan could be your DH against right-handed pitchers with O'Neal, Carlson, and Newt as your outfield. Can I be honest? I wouldn't start Carlson in a game one right now. I wouldn't right now. Well, no, you hurt, would have man. to see him. You would have to see it go well against <laughs> right-handed pitchers, and they're going to have to start him against righties because you got to find out. It, was it the hand? Was that the issue for him, or was it a problem with the swing? To me, Donovan's not a DH option anymore. He's my second baseman. I mean, because the bat has been better than Gorman, and honestly, and I know he struggles at times, but he's a better defensive player at second base than Gorman. In that Gorman. scenario, then Dickerson is your DH. You, yeah. you put Dickerson at DH, uh, Donovan at second base, and then your outfield yeah. is O'Neal, Carlson, and Newt Bar. I think that's the best case scenario. Absolutely. That's it, why you need Carlson to perform. And you need Newt to start hitting. Last night was a good sign. He, he had that home run. You said it was the longest home run hit in Bush this year? Tanner? Yeah. It was yeah. one. It's crazy. It was a little bit longer than Gorman's because Gorman's. 453, yeah. I want to say. Gorman's was like one number behind him or something. Interesting. Uh, all right. Believe it or not, guys, 
the Brewers will make the playoffs. Not believing it. You're not? No. I just, I, I get that they, they competed against the Cardinals and they played really well, but Milwaukee is just, uh, Milwaukee doesn't have the same stuff as San Diego and, Atlanta, and um, Philly, and I understand San Diego struggling, but if I had to pick one team out of those two, I think San Diego's got a little bit more than Milwaukee. Yeah, I'm not going to believe it either. Uh, for whatever reason, as much as the offense is struggling in San Diego, which is just unbelievable to think of, I, I look at that Milwaukee offense. It doesn't really scare me. No. Like, they come into that series, and they're basically home run or bust. But I looked at that lineup, and I was like, yeah, I don't. Hunter Renfro is probably really... the, the guy that scared you the most in yeah. that lineup. And, Obviously, and like, Andrew McCutcheon did. Yeah, yeah, McCutcheon. I mean, he's like probably arguably like their second or third best hitter. Adamas hasn't been the same. Yelich ain't the same guy he was. So I'm going to believe this. I think they missed the playoffs. I don't think they get in. I think that I'm with you guys. I don't believe that they'll get in either. I think that you end up seeing the Padres. I think that's going to be the first round matchups. Cardinals versus Padres. If I had to guess today. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Guys, believe it or not, the Colts are on upset watch in week two again as they go down to Jacksonville to take on the Jaguars. Hey, man. Oh, I, I know you and I. Watch. I know you and I bet beers on Jacksonville um, thinking that they'd be good. They didn't get me very excited after week one. Um, so I'm not going to believe this one. I think the Colts are actually going to be fine, and I think Jacksonville's going to make me OT bone a six-pack. Yeah. Well, Which I'll give to, it to you. Your uh, say, mile run yesterday. Run while I'm doing it. By the way, you drinking beer on that mile run is like when I drank whiskey on my 30th birthday. You're not going to uh, want it for a while. Oh, well, you we've drank whiskey together, and yeah. you don't do very well. I'm telling you, man, it ruined me. I'm not going to believe this either. I. I was not all that impressed with Jacksonville either in week one. I And I, I trust that Matt Ryan, I trust Matt Ryan over Trevor Lawrence. And then I also trust uh, Frank Reich a little bit more than I trust Doug Peterson. So I think they correct that. And I think they go into Jacksonville. I think the spread's on this, what, four points, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. I think they'll end up covering the Is four points Is this true? Colts haven't won in Jacksonville since 2014? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Oh, <laughs> okay, I'm going to believe it. It, that's kind of like the uh, the Patriots going down to Miami. Patriots never win in Miami, ever. Yeah. I just the, the Steelers have the same issue. Steelers go down to Florida, and it, every year there's something weird. That Cleveland happens. Cleveland couldn't win in week one. They were 0-16 and one in their last seventeen. I just saw until they won this last Tom week. Brady has not beat the New Orleans Saints since he joined the yeah. Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 2020. Let's do that one as well, guys. Believe it or not, the Saints will continue that streak on Sunday, and they will beat the Bucks in New Orleans. I, I'm I'm believing this one. I think. I'm not impressed by Tampa Bay after their week one win. Like, and I understand it was against Dallas, but they didn't put that, that shock factor in the game offensively. And that's what they backed themselves by. You got Tom Brady and all these weapons and you weren't that good. I thought the saints were awesome. And I thought the saints finally got some chemistry between their quarterback and Michael Thomas. I I'm believing in the saints. So I think they will beat Tampa Bay. I'm not going to believe this. I think Tampa Bay ends that streak. Oh, you're a jerk. I, I was impressed by Tampa in week one. I know you guys weren't as sold on them, but I, I thought they moved the ball up and down the field against a pretty good Cowboys defense, and they just weren't able to convert in the red zone. I think they changed that this weekend. New Orleans, let's be honest, New Orleans is lucky to be 1-0. They should have lost that game to the Atlanta Falcons, but the Atlanta Falcons are pros of blowing fourth-quarter leads. So oh. I, I think that the Saints end up losing this one. I don't trust Jameis Winston against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Unbelievable. I'm, I'm telling Tanner. Anthony on you. I know that I was critical of Tom Brady before the season. It sure seems like he's got some personal stuff that he's got to get taken care of. Um, but I still believe that the Bucks are just a better team than what the Saints are right now. I, 
The Saints did not impress me in week one. I know everybody loved them going in, and they became this like trendy, weird upset. Good teams cover. Hipster upset pick for the Super Bowl. I'm not there. I I don't think that that's going to be where they end up. I like the Bucs this week in New Orleans. Final one here. Let's go Blues edition. Believe it or not, guys, all of Pavel Buchnevich, Robert Thomas, and Jordan Kyrou will finish this season with at least 80 points on the year. Thomas, Kyrou, Buchnevich, all with 80 or more points this year. I'll believe this one. I think this year, it, I think this one will be simple for that because they still have Vladdy, and that's where a lot of the goals will come from, and you'll get a lot of points on the side for Thomas. Um, I think that's going to be a simple one for him, so I'll believe it. All three of those guys getting 80-plus mm-hmm. points? Oh, man. I Last year, for what it's worth, Thomas was at 77, Booch was at 76, and Cairo at 75, and they were all more than a point-per-game players based on their games played. I'm going to say... I'm not going to believe this. I'm not sure that all three can get to 80 points. I think you can see maybe two or three. That's just such a hard feat to accomplish. I mean, that team was really good last year. You only had one guy do it, and that was Vladimir Tarasenko. So I'm going to. I'm not going to believe this. I don't think all three will do it. I think maybe one or two will. I think they will because of the power play. I think that all of them are going to get more opportunities on the power play than they did a year ago, and therefore I do believe that all three of them will finish with at least 80 points this season, and they will be viewed at the end of the year as the best young trio, or at least among the best young trios in all of hockey. Coming up in 15 minutes we'll give you a chance to win a pair of tickets to see luke combs next summer this is your chance to do it right here on 101 espn coming up at 145 but next does jordan bennington need to finish the year as a top 10 goalie for the blues to be a legit threat in the western conference alex will tell you why that is the case next year on 101 espn we're right back to the pk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. So the NHL Network is doing their list of the top position players around the league, and they sent out their top 10 goaltenders around the NHL the other day. Alex, would you guess where Jordan Bennington ranks on this list? Top 10 goalies in the NHL. The guy was unbelievable uh, last year. Because, you would assume that because you're kind of playoffs. a jerk. You'll say, no, he's not on the list. Unfortunately, that is indeed correct. Here's Jeremy Rutherford on with the morning show today talking about what he heard from a conversation he had with Patrick Waugh. You may have remembered him. Tanner, do you know who Patrick Waugh is? Uh, yeah, he coached the Avalanche for a while, and then he ended up resigning, I remember correctly. He knows Patrick Waugh, the coach. My God. Uh, He talks with Patrick Waugh about... God, you're young. (laughs) Zachary Bolduc, um, but... He also had a conversation about what Jordan Bennington means for the Blues and what Bennington meant for them last year in the series against the Avs and why he believes that that series would have been completely different if he was playing. He said he thinks the Blues beat Colorado if Jordan Bennington stays healthy. Here's one of the best goalies, if not the best goalie in the history of the league, and he believes that Bennington meant that much to the Blues last year. Oh, so uh, somebody agrees with me that uh, the Blues would have knocked off Colorado. Who's Patrick Wall? What's he thinking? Not, yeah. Yeah, what's Who he is know? that legendary goaltender? Look, I I agree with that sentiment, but that's in the past. You move forward, and I, the only way that this team can reach its potential is if Jordan Bennington is a top 10 goaltender in the National Hockey League. The reason, and they still finished very good last season. What was it, 109 points? But that was because you had Billy Husso save the day. You need Jordan Bennington to not need Thomas Christ to save the day. You need Jordan Bennington to win you 
35, 40 games this season because that's the type of goaltender that they paid him to be. And NHL Network put the list out of the top 10 goaltenders. And as you mentioned, he's not on that list. And it's hard for me to argue a lot of the guys that are on that list for how they performed last season. But I do think Jordan Bennington can be better than Frederick Anderson from the Carolina Hurricanes, than Connor Hellebuck from the Winnipeg Jets, than Thatcher Demko from the Vancouver Canucks. I think he should be in the top six conversation with these other goaltenders. And if he's not, then you're going to be talking about, oh boy, where are we getting the savior from this year? Is he going to be a 50 game starter for them this year? Probably needs Pro- to be. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you're the prob- reason I ask is because last year he started 37, and he it, that was that was the correct decision. Well, it's like, because Billy Huso was better well. than yeah. him last year, but it was also because he wasn't good. Like Jordan Bennington lost that job for a period of time. I, I think if he goes back to the player that he was in the 2020 2021 season, is that pre? Oh no, that was yeah post COVID. He was okay. basically the same guy before and after the pandemic, where it yeah. was a nine twelve save percentage in the twenty twenty season before things got shut down, and then a nine ten save percentage the year prior to last year. If he's in that range and he's just more consistent, giving up like two and a half, two point six goals per game, that's fine. I don't know if that's a top ten goalie in the regular season, but frankly, I don't really care where he ranks in the regular season. We know that when the stakes are the highest, I'm not going to make the same mistake again. I think Jordan Bennington lives up to the moment. Yeah. I think he he psychs himself up in the playoffs. And for whatever reason, I don't have to understand why or how it happens. He lives up to that. So if you can be a above average regular season starting NHL goalie that can capably start 50 plus games and then you get into the playoffs and you're a guy that nobody wants to face, that's what I need out of Jordan Bennington this year. Nothing more, nothing less. Yeah, and I think it might actually benefit him to not have the guy breathing down his back in terms of getting opportunities, and I know he's had very much success when Jake Allen was doing that and Billy Huso was doing that, but I also think now that Jordan Bennington is like, hey, you're our guy, I think that's going to benefit his type of play, but... Here's the thing. If you're getting what you got last year from Jordan Bennington and you're relying on Thomas Grice to come in and win you 25 games, you you might be a wild card team for how good this Central Division and now the Pacific Division is set up. If Jordan Bennington is winning you 35 to 40 games this season, you're talking about a team that could be fighting for a one or two spot in the top of the Central, maybe in the top of the Western Conference. There is some news in the NHL. Uh, according to a report from uh, somebody that's out talking to Nathan McKinnon, apparently Nathan McKinnon, Alex, is expecting to get some sort of a contract extension done in the not too distant future. He said that it's, quote, pretty close and he's hoping to get it done, quote, soon. As far as what the price will be in terms of the AAV, it will be a, quote, fair deal, but it's not going to be a single digit. Any <laughs> predictions right now on what the AAV is for Nathan McKinnon's new contract with the Colorado Avalanche? Ten and a half million dollars per year for eight years. Who's got the highest paid? Isn't, McDavid. What's his? 11? Like 11 and a half, I think. 11 or 11 and a half. AAV 12 and a half is where Connor McDavid is. Panarin is at 11.6, as is Austin Matthews. Yeah, he'll be 10 and a half, 11 mil for eight years. I think See, it gets I, above 11. I think it does, too. I think it's either 11 and a half or 12. Now, the but, fair deal part's went, where it gets me. Yeah, I think, I think he, he said he that because 11. it's a fair 5. deal to him. I think it's a fair deal to him is what he's saying. He'll get more than Tavares. He'll get more than Marner. He'll get more than Kane and Taves. I, I think he'll I, be in that 11 and a half million dollars. I think range. he's saying it's fair for the team. Because he wants See, to keep I, them competitive. Ten and a half keeps them competitive. Didn't we hear Elliot Friedman 
a while back now. Where he, he said, said he's gonna he get thought McDavid. he was going to get the highest paid salary yeah. in the NHL. I think when he says fair deal, I think what McKinnon is saying, hey, this is a fair deal for me. I'd be surprised. And it will be. By, by the way, if he gets $11.5 million and the oh. cap goes up the way that Army is saying that they're projecting it to go up, that will be a fair deal I, for both make, him and for the deal. When the cap is at $100 million, that's going to be a steal 100%. of a contract. I'll make a guess. I'll say because he may be seeing that, what, and I'm surprised more players aren't doing this, I'll say it's not eight years. I'll say it's like five years. I'll say it goes five years around oh, no. that salary we're talking about because if it's going to spike like that, I want to hit the open market again if I'm Nathan McKinnon. Yeah, but I don't think he thinks that way. I think he's thinking I want to be here. This is where I want to play, and I want the most money possible. I think it's an eight- or nine-year deal for $11 million. I don't think it goes north of $11 million because he's saying it's a fair deal, and I th- I know where you're getting at saying it's fair for me. I think he's also saying it's fair for Colorado because I want to keep this team competitive. Coming up next, we're going to give you a chance to win a pair of tickets to see Luke Combs next summer and what Bill DeWitt had to say about Adam Wainwright makes me think we're going to see Wayno back next year. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Seven eight zero is the Air Comfort Service tax line to win a free pair of tickets to see Luke Combs at Bush Stadium on June seventeenth of next year. Tickets on sale tomorrow, starting at ten a.m. Or you can text in right now six five seven eight zero for your chance to win the free pair of tickets. You can also find bonus chances to win right now at one hundred one ESPN.com and on the free one hundred one ESPN app. Here is what you need to do: if you're texter number one hundred one, and you can tell us which team, who was the team that is selling that weird hot dog contraption that Tanner mentioned earlier today. Yeah. Who is, what is the team name? If you can do that. Your text Ooh. number 101. You are the winner of a pair of tickets to see Luke Combs. This is Before a tough we one. get out of here today, I want to play one bit of audio quickly from last night. Bill DeWitt was on Valley Sports Midwest talking about Adam Wainwright's accomplishments. Here's what he said. I think this leads us to believe something in particular. We'll tell you what that is after this. Yachty's saying it's his last year, and I know that it is. Uh, Wayno, I think there's a good chance he'll be back as well as he's pitched this year. So, you know, at their age and with the miles on him, uh, it's very impressive. All right, Yachty's coming back. (laughs) On the count of three, do you guys believe after hearing that, that Adam Wainwright will be back playing in a Cardinals uniform next year? Ready? One, two, three. Yes. Yes. We're all on the same Tanner, page. Tanner, you didn't answer. I said yes. What are you talking about? <laughs> Wayno's going to be back. Yeah. I, I I have never been more convinced. I was legitimately kind of wavering on this midway through the season. I wasn't sure they were going to bring him back or not. I'm now officially yeah. on board. After hearing Bill DeWitt yeah. talk about that, yeah, I think he's Next year's next his year. farewell tour, and it's just Agreed. a matter of weeks before we get the video of his daughter and his wives. What? You mean daughters, daughters and, and wife? <laughs> Putting the video out of uh, he's playing one more season. Do you think he's going to be a Hall of Famer if he gets to 200 wins? Yeah, I yeah. do. I, I think that's what locks his case. I, I think he's already got a case, but yeah. I, I think he's got a really good case. I think 200 locks him into the Hall of Fame. I agree. This record that he just broke, the fact that, I mean, if he has another year like what we have seen the last three seasons where he has a 3.1 ERA in his age 38, 39, and 40 seasons, you continue putting up those kinds of numbers. He is now... We're, He's at 195 wins in his career. He probably gets like 197 maybe by the end of the season. Oh, yeah. 
I, I think he's going to end up being a Hall if it wasn't for the and team he hasn't, losing the game. He hasn't won a Cy Young, but he's been top 10 five times, four yeah. of those in the top five. So, yep. yeah. All-star how wins. many times? Two World Series. Including, yeah, th- four of them in the top three mm-hmm. Cy yeah. Young voting. Two World Series, one as a closer. If they on get the one roster. more? Oh, yeah. If they get one more, he's definitely, especially him as a starter, but... Uh, I think he's already got a case, so I think he's going to be. For Alex Ferrario, Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. We will be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. We'll have our football pick that we are drafting for for this upcoming weekend. We've picked the games. Tanner has picked what the punishment's going to be that replaces his beer run, so we'll tell you all of that tomorrow. We will be back then. The Fast Lane's coming up next from 11 to 2, right? Or from 2 to 6 right here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you.